Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. The following is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. Hey, this is Scott Norton, and you're listening to Keeping It Strong Style. Yo, this is Rich Ladder from One Nation Radio. This is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We present to you the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Let's go. It's the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Covering New Japan, they ready to hold it down. Jeremy Donovan and the young boy Josh. Come and hit a job out in Barrio the Frost. From Tokyo Dome over to the G1. Social Suplex is the network where we can get it done. I'm a chiller. And let them have it Cause this is just an intro Keeping the strong style Six stars from the get go Boy Yeah from Tampa Bay To the Tokyo Dome This is keeping it strong style With your host Jeremy Donovan And the young boy Joshua Smith And thank you for listening Welcome to Keeping It Strong Style, the ace of podcasts on the Social Suplex Podcast Network. The young boy Joshua Smith here. On today's show, I will review the new beginning in Sapporo Nights 1 and 2, preview the new beginning in Osaka, and cover all the latest news in the world of New Japan Pro Wrestling. You can support this show by subscribing and following the Social Suplex Podcast Network or keeping it strong style on the podcast app of your choice and leaving a rating and review. You can also get all the podcasts over at socialsuplex.com. Check out our Pro Wrestling Tees store, prowrestlingtees.com slash socialsuplex. That's where you can get your official Keeping It Strong Style t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation by visiting socialsuplex.com slash donate and clicking on the donate button under the Keeping It Strong Style logo. This week's episode is brought to you by NJPWEXT, the only browser extension for NewJapanWorld.com, featuring frequently updated and with features like dark mode, improved translations and layouts, custom and shared playlists, synchronized viewing parties, and much, much more. It takes NJPW World to the next level. 
Visit njpwext.us today for details. And ladies and gentlemen, as you can hear, I am here solo on the feed, all by myself, no guest host, no Jeremy Donovan. He is uh, away with his wife there on a work-slash-marriage retreat. I don't know what you do on those. Hopefully, he's having a really, really great time. And I am here with all of you lovely people. And um, last week, I was pretty gung-ho about doing this show by myself, I've got to tell you. Uh, I'd done a lot of research. I thought I'd gotten the correct technical specs and software necessary for me to do this show to the highest of degrees. And for what, and we even did like um, pilot test episodes with different things. I mean, I'd I'd done a lot of research, copious amounts of research to get everything prepped for for tonight's recording. And then I go in to this gimmick to log this shit and it just won't work for me for whatever reason it it figures that that would be my luck um i'd already gotten the the go ahead by the big boss man jeremy donovan you know he listened to it he thought it sounded okay and then uh someone told me like that's not for you baby so (laughs) so i don't know they didn't want me to do that uh i did however find an alternative way to record. Hopefully this sounds good because this is the only recording I'm going to be doing tonight. I can assure you of that. Um, I know in the past I did a special quote unquote bonus episode covering Tamashi in the early part of January and it was, uh, it didn't sound very good. And um, I'm recording by similar means, but hopefully better quality means this time. And uh, if you're listening for the first time and, and the, Quality is just dog shite. I get it. Trust me, we have a certain level of excellency and quality that we expect here at Keeping a Strong Style. And uh, if this doesn't meet that level, my apologies to each and every single one of you. Uh, we will get this figured out. We've got some uh, upgrades to the show coming down the pipeline. But in the meantime, you get to hear my dulcet tones, my voice, and... Um, you know, I'm going to be with you here for the next little while. I don't know how long the show's going to go. Hopefully not too long, but we do have a lot to cover here. And so I'm going to give it to you guys as best as I possibly can on my own, which is nerve wracking being, this is probably like the sixth or seventh time I've tried to record this audio, but, uh, whatever happens on this recording, I'm not going to stop it. If I flub, if I mess up, you guys are just going to have to give me some, some leeway here because I'm used to being in a tag team, all right? I'm not used to being a singles guy. Um, You know, that's not really my jam. And um, I'm usually the hot tag guy. Jeremy's the baby face in peril. You know, he lays the groundwork. I just come in, house of fire, boom, 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 give a big boot, tag him back in, let him get the one, two, three. That's about all I really do. (laughs) So uh, he usually does most of the heavy lifting. So it's all on my shoulders tonight, so... Hopefully it's not too atrocious, but uh, we do have a lot to discuss here. The first thing uh, that I wanted to make mention of was the passing of legend Lanny Poffo. He uh, passed away from this earth on February the 2nd, 2023, and there's a lot that could be said about Lanny Poffo if you're not familiar with him a legend of the Poffo family from the ICW territory, the outlaw territory, quote unquote, back in the late 70s, early 80s. And there's a lot of uh, really great 
subject uh, matter out there covering his life. I'm sure uh, Dave Meltzer's going to do a really, really great job in uh, the Wrestling Observer newsletter this week, uh, kind of just talking about the entire history of Lanny Poffo. I've heard uh, a lot of obituaries and well wishes and retrospectives. Uh, this podcast might not be the one to potentially do all that. I mean, I think I could do something um, to that degree, but the, the reality here is Lanny was more of a territory star. He was a guy that was well-known in the WWF. He made a huge mark in wrestling uh, through his family and his family's name, but he didn't have a huge tie to New Japan Pro Wrestling, except in late 2018, I believe it was, when he was invited for whatever reason to come over and do a English commentary desk tryout. And, um, you know, Lanny is kind of like a boisterous, positive voice. He's this guy that... um, you know, is known for doing limericks and, and poems and, and rhyming and that sort of thing. And I don't know that I'd ever heard too much about him being a commentator. Uh, and I'd never heard too much about him being connected to New Japan other than him being an innovator of the high-flying um, offense in North America and seeing Satoru Sayama do the, the moonsault for the first time. He took that move over to North America and was one of the first people and might even quite possibly be the first in North America to ever use a moonsault, which he did give all credit to Sayama. But uh, that's that was about the full extent of his connection to Shinihan. And that showed when he was on the desk and he was a great guy. I'm not I don't want to say anything too negative about Lanny Poffo here whatsoever. He's got a uh, a legendary um, legacy behind him. But uh, his time in New Japan on the, the broadcast commentary desk was pretty comical. Very, very funny. In fact, it became so apparent that he wasn't good at this that he kind of was in on the gag and towards the tail end of the uh, of the tour that he was covering. Like, he was making, like, self-deprecating remarks about, you know, how he really didn't know much about the competitors or the sport or what was going on whatsoever. Uh, he did give us the one bit of long-lasting legacy though in that he called the rev pro champion at the time i don't even recall who it was he called him the champion of the british (laughs) which so many people found that funny it's kind of just been this thing that stuck and you hear it on english commentary all the time chris charlton says it kevin kelly you'll hear it on this podcast and other places and that's one of those things that lanny sort of uh put out there into the zeitgeist and sort of has stood the brief test of time. But I was kind of surprised and, and sad to hear about the passing of Lanny Poffo. And, um, you know, our best wishes go out to him and his family. I did see that um, friend of the show, Mavs Gillis, who also is a alumni of the English broadcasting team. Um, he put out a really great retrospective kind of detailing his time in Japan with Lanny and their friendship. We did go ahead and retweet that on on, uh, our timeline. So if you haven't checked that out, I highly recommend it. That's probably going to do a better job of any sort of memorial I could do on this show. But um, yeah, best wishes to Lanny Poffo and his family. But let's jump into this review. So we had two nights of new beginning action coming from the Hokkaido Perfectual Sports Center. Um, both nights were on February 4th and February 5th, uh, night one, we had a reported attendance of 3,073. This was just a little bit under 
what they did for night two, 3,316 reported attendance, but uh, pretty good houses for for that um, venue on both evenings. And both nights are kind of similar in a certain uh, respect. You've got um, the first five matches of the evening are pretty much going to be undercard, sort of like road to level um, preview matches. Either that or you also might have like a Young Lion opener, which they're prone to do in New Japan. Then the last three matches of each night were very much... um, you know, the main attractions and the main events of the evening. So um, we're going to go through these nights real quick and I'll, I'll do my best to kind of give you guys a recap of the action and the story and, and kind of fill in for Jeremy not being here because he sort of helps me out with that stuff quite a bit. But uh, the first match of the night, we saw Great Ocon defeat Oscar Luebe seven minutes and 25 seconds. And this was pretty interesting. Um, you know, Oscar is the youngest of the young lines that's active right now. Um, big guy from Germany and someone that we've been very impressed with so far. And he he was a good test for Great Ocon, who um, recently was defeated in his challenge for the KOPW title. He is the current reigning British Openweight or the uh, Red Pro undisputed british heavyweight champion he wore that title to the ring he came down and really got started grinding out oscar luebe he gave him a lot of like groundwork kind of kept kept him on the mat and um you know just hit him with a lot of different things anaconda vice on the mat early uh oscar was able to reach the ropes later on he nailed him with a vertical suplex Luebe fired back with a body slam, and he got fired up. Eventually, Oscar was able, even though Great Ocon um, controlled most of the majority of the match, Luebe was able to get that uh, body slam and then put him put uh, Ocon into a Boston Crab. And this was a little different because we're not we're we're very accustomed to seeing young lines apply Boston Crabs and tease a victory only to be foiled. But Ocon did such a phenomenal job here, teasing that he was actually really going to tap out. And it was very, very close to looking like like it was lights out, like maybe he had played too much with his food uh, on this evening and gave too much of an opening for Oscar. But eventually, just before he tapped out, he reaches the ropes at seven minutes, and Ocon was pissed, immediately applied his sheep killer chokehold. Uh, I believe the name of that move officially. It is the uh, let's see here, the Subaru Ozaro styled sheep killer, and it's sort of like a cross face chokehold, standing cross face chokehold, uh, neck crank. It's sort of a nasty bit of business that he does there. But um, Oscar did a really great job selling it, kind of giving of trying to give a verbal submission, and then eventually passing out from the maneuver at seven minutes and 25 seconds. So great Ocon picks up the win there and um, yeah, good story that he sort of was just in control the whole time and then gave too much of an opening for this young lion to potentially get a surprise win and then just kind of got him out of there. Um, the second match of the night, we saw the team of El Desperado, Minoru Suzuki and Ren Narita. Those three men are teaming up. They are currently feuding with the house of torture and they're sort of in a tumultuous, um, tension-filled alliance. I wouldn't call it a unit just yet, but they sort of have an alliance. Those three men teamed up with Young Lion, Ryohei Oiwa, 
And they defeated the House of Torture team of Dick Togo, Evil, Show, and Yujiro Takahashi. This match went 9 minutes and 36 seconds. And um, just before the bell, House of Torture attacked, which you would have expected Suzuki and Desperado to expect something like that since that's a staple of Suzuki-Goon for years and years and years on end. But uh, they were attacked and... um, the match kind of got kicked off from there. This match was good. A lot of back and forth. A lot of House of Torture shenanigans. Uh, misdirection. Choking. Um, that sort of stuff. But um, the big story of the match was essentially the, the fact that Suzuki and Rita have a lot of tension between one another. And they did. They weren't like prone to tag one another. They weren't working well as a unit. There's just a lot of like uh, miscommunication, and I think a lot of what where this comes from. Suzuki and Desperado, obviously, they teamed together for years as members of Suzuki Goon Renarita. He's a guy that you know was from the LA Dojo, the Nogay Dojo, just returned from um, his excursion, and he's calling himself the Son of Strong Style. Well, while Minoru Suzuki is obviously the epitome. Uh, strong style coming from that rich uh, tradition going back to Carl Gotch and Antonio Noki, someone who literally descends from that lineage. And it's kind of funny that, you know, Renarita calls himself the son of strong style because Suzuki literally is strong style. So, um, but yeah, they continue to have dissension amongst their ranks throughout the match. Um, House of Torture did a really great job isolating Oiwa but eventually, Desperado was tagged in for a hot tag at around 6 minutes and 30 seconds. Um, show ends up hitting a spear in Desperado. Desperado fires back with the spine buster. They tag in Narita, who battled with Evil. Um, he hit a really, really, really great Northern Light suplex on Dick Togo. There was a point where they started to choke Narita with uh, the garrote wire, but Suzuki came in and made the save. And... Um, just after the Northern Light suplex on Togo, Narita applies the Cobra stretch in the middle of the ring, and he gets the tap out on Dick Togo. Um, after the match, Suzuki and Narita were talking, and Minoru says something to the effect of, if you stick with me, I'll take you to the top. Suzuki then turned and left, and it was pretty clear that Narita was a little conflicted, but he wasn't ready to fully embraced Desperado and Suzuki and shake hands with them. Um, And that finish came at 9 minutes, 36 seconds. So pretty good match there. Third match of the night, we had the team of TMDK. That's Mad Mikey Nichols, Shane Haste, and Zack Sabre Jr. Along with their young lion, Kosei Fujita, they defeated the team of Chaos, Hiroki Goto, Tomohiro Ishii, Yoshihashi, as they teamed with young lion Yuto Nakashima, at 11 minutes and 28 seconds. And just like I said last week, and like we've been saying all throughout this tour, these Mighty Don't Kneel matches have really been excellent and just um, kind of been highlights of the tour. And this one was completely in line with that as well. In fact, I would say this was the highlight of the undercard of the show. And we had Sabre coming out here uh, with his... TV title. He is currently feuding with uh, Ishii. They had a TV title match scheduled for the next night, as well as the TMDK tag team had a, uh, that's Nichols and Hayes. They have a a heavyweight tag team title um, shot against the team of Bishamon, Goto, and Yoshihashi. So this was effectively another preview match for 
two of the major matches coming up on the second night of the show. Um, but this was really great. These guys all just were in there trading lots of um, offense and moves, and it, it was really all over the place, just these guys just going at it the whole time. And most of the early portions of the of the match were, as I mentioned, previews for the TV title and the heavyweight tag team title feuds that were kind of ongoing. And it wasn't until we got till about like the nine minute mark where all these guys had kind of got in, got their shit in. And then eventually we wound up with a situation where Yuto Nakashima and Kosei Fujita are both tagged in and they're just standing in the middle of the ring while all the veterans are on the outside. And this was a huge spotlight for these two guys in particular, both being long, uh, young lions and they're trading forearm shots. And eventually Fujita hits a drop kick and after he hits the drop kick, somehow, um, uh, you know, I messed up there. Uh, Nakajima hits a drop kick and gets a Boston Crab on Fujita. And he's really, 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 really close to tapping out Fujita. And kind of the story here is Fujita's this underling who is um, learning at, he's sitting under the learning tree of the TMDK seniors, especially Zack Sabre Jr., and he's gaining all this technical prowess and acumen. And even in the midst of all that, he's still caught in a Boston Crab by his um, other young lion. Um, you know, I, I I don't know. And it's really apparent that he's going to tap out from the Boston Crab. Eventually, Zack Sabre Jr. enters in to break it up. But had he not been there to break it up, Fujita would have tapped out. Um, Yuto ends up clocking Fujita with a forearm. And um, they trade drop kicks and eventually Fujita is able to apply the key lock arm bar the same one that he'd been using earlier on the to- on the tour and he taps out uh Nakajima here and this is the same move that he was sort of um being taught by Zack Sabre Jr. so kind of a continuation of that story and you know the commentary team did a really great job kind of putting over the idea that like yes he did a great job in getting um what's known as the key lock or the kimura lock or you know if you're familiar with it um kushida uses the maneuver in the exact same way he calls it the hoverboard lock um but they also were key to highlight that if zack saber jr hadn't been there we might have seen a different result because Yuta Nakajima was very, very close to tapping out Fujita with the Boston Crab. So um, there's a lot of heat amongst all the young lions with Fujita for him kind of joining up with TMDK and sort of getting preferential treatment and kind of this mini push that's come along with it. So we move on to the fourth match of the night and we have the team of Tamatanga, Hikaleo, Hiroshi Tanahashi, and Master Watto as they're accompanied by Jado, and they defeated the Bull Club team of El Fantasmo, Kenta, Jay White, Taiji Ishimori with Gato, 12 minutes and 47 seconds. Um, at the beginning of the match, we had a moment where Fantasmo and Jay White, they stopped quickly at the commentary to kind of jaw jack, and White vows that he will win the Loser Leaves Japan match against Hikaleo and kick Hikaleo out of Japan. And after that, we kind of end up in a situation where all throughout the match, these different um, bull club heels are doing everything in their power to stay away from 
whichever counterpart they have on the opposite side of the match that is looking for comeuppance. So, you know, um, in this match with G.O.D., you've got Hikaleo who's looking to get his hands on Jay White. They've got the Loser Leaves uh, Japan match coming up next week in Osaka. Tamatonga is currently embroiled in a never open weight title feud with uh, with ELP. And that match is also coming up in Osaka. So again, another preview match here. Tanahashi will be facing off with uh, Kenta in a special singles match. And then the same for Watto and Ishimori. So essentially four singles matches all kind of highlighted here. And the book club team talked a big game. But as soon as the match started, every single one of them didn't want to start. And we're looking in, you know, for every way out to avoid having to face off against the man that they're, you know, paired up against um as the match continued though we got a lot of great action here tanahashi sort of played the the face in peril and was isolated by the bull club team who used a lot of different cheating tactics um down the stretch some of the stuff that was really great tamatonga looked awesome in his you know high octane babyface offense and stuff he did with phantasmo they're doing a really good job showcasing the kind of like building hatred between those two guys um, with Jane Hikaleo, it's kind of interesting because I haven't heard a lot of talk lately. Uh, initially, when they brought up this uh, stipulation, there was a lot of buzz. But I haven't heard a lot lately. But within the confines of the match, Jay was doing everything in his power to stay away from this hulking monster and Hikaleo who wants to get his hands on Jay White. And from time to time, he would get some good offense in. But Jay is so uh, wily and you know conniving as a veteran that he was able to avoid a lot of the most dangerous offense from Hikaleo um although down the stretch Hikaleo was able to get a huge um power slam on Jay White that kind of set up the finish of the match here and then you sort of had Tanahashi and Kenta going at it and Wato and Ishimori um we we wound up towards the close of the match with your typical um multi-man new japan style clothes where everybody's running in and getting in their big offense and everyone's sort of getting laid out and then eventually jay and hikaleo are on the outside and they're uh oh you know i apologize that's actually a match on the next night um what ends up happening is Wato and Ishimori are tagged in for the first time at about 10 minutes and 30 seconds. And um, Wato nails a flying forearm for a near fall. Uh, Kenton Ishimori begin to work over Wato. They isolate him. Wato gets a... Uh, Jay White performs a dragon screw leg whip on Tanahashi. And Hikaleo tried to get a choke slam on Jay White, but instead he just shoves him over the top rope. So everybody's kind of getting laid out. And Tama comes in, hits a tongue and twist. And in the midst of all this confusion and everybody, you know, sort of uh, getting their offense in, Wato jumps in the ring being the legal man and he hits a jackknife cover on Ishimori who was not expecting it for the one, two, three, sort of out of nowhere. So they're telling a story here where both of these guys are wanting very badly to beat one another. That's Wato and Ishimori. And all throughout the match, they did try to hit finishers and different big signature moves. And they were, they were both able to kind of avoid that stuff. But Wato showed on this night that he was able to still get the one, two, three with a uh, undercover pin on Ishimori. Fifth match of the night, we had the team of LIJ, Los Angeles de Japón, um, as they teamed up. 
Uh, we had the team of Hiromu Takahashi, Bushi, Shingo Takagi, and Sonata. And they defeated the team of Kazushika Okada, Toriyano, Ryuzuki Taguchi, and Yo. They defeated them at 11 minutes and 1 second. Yo and Hiromu Takahashi obviously have an IWGP Junior Heavyweight World Title match the next evening. As well, later on the tour, we have Okada taking on Shingo Takagi for the IWGP World Heavyweight title. So some good preview matches here. Plus, there's sort of this ongoing story with Sonata where he's kind of cold and coming up short in a lot of different situations. That's been uh, playing itself out all throughout the tour. Yo and Hiromu open up the match and immediately they're trading stiff forearm shots, giving us a preview of what's to come. Um, Yo ends up hitting a standing neck breaker. Sonata enters. He ties up Yano. A lot of comedy and shenanigans there. Shingo gets in. Him and Yano go at it. Um, he glares at Okada. Lij uh, take turns working over Yano. Eventually, Okada tags in about five minutes. He hits a running back elbow against Shingo. Hits a DDT for the near fall. Um, Okada ends up um, hitting a neck neck breaker over his knees, working the neck as he's known to do. And then eventually Taguchi enters, hits the three Migo suplexes on Shingo, um, hits his butt offense, all of that. Around 10 minutes, Yo comes in, hits Dragon Loop, Dragon Screw Leg Whip on Hiromu. Uh, Bushi nails a dive through the ropes onto Okada. So again, we're getting that similar New Japan style finish where everybody is hitting their big stuff. But through the midst of all that, it leaves an isolated... Um, Taguchi in the match alone with Shingo Takagi. Shingo ends up hitting the last of the dragon pow- sit-out powerbomb uh, power slam on Taguchi for the pin. One, two, three. Sort of um, heating him up a little bit in route to his challenge for Okada's world title. So good little preview there. And that brings us to the meat and potatoes of the evening. So the sixth match of the night, we had a IWGP Junior Heavyweight Tag Team title match as the team of Yoshinobu Kanemaru and Doki from Just Four Guys. Uh, They challenged for the title against the United Empire team of Francesco Akira and TJP. And let me tell you guys, this match was really, really fantastic. I know that we've been saying that a lot about Francesco Akira and TJP, but this match just once again went to show you how impressive they are as a team and let's take nothing away from um yoshinabu kenamaro and doki because kenamaro and doki are on fire right now as well um you know for years i've always known and heard that kenamaro was this really legendary junior from noah and heard about a, a lot of the great matches he's had there and i've seen some of them including like the pretty famous match he had in noah with uh Jushin Thunder Liger. That being said, I've never really loved Kanemaru in New Japan. I knew he was like very technically sound and, you know, really relied a lot on cheating. And every now and again throughout the years, you'd see a little bit of a glimmer of the old Kanemaru come through, the guy that was more athletic, the guy that was a little bit more hardworking. And I'd, I'd heard some of that and I, I like some of his offense, but I've never loved Kanemaru. On the opposite spectrum, I love Doki. I think Doki is one of the best junior wrestlers alive today and someone that goes 
out there. We, we make the joke on the show that he doesn't want to go back to the uh, the dusty floors of Tijuana and, and Mexico City. He's not going back. He's, he's here to stay. And um, that's because this guy really puts it all out there. He reminds me of almost like a, a junior Sabu mixed in with, uh, you know, some other crazy daredevil guys that we've seen throughout the years. But lately, ever since the breakup of Suzuki Goon and this, uh, this new unit, just four guys has been sort of mandated. Kanemaru has kind of become a guy that is a workhorse and is going out there and just fucking killing it. Um, Getting into the match itself, TJP and Kanemaru started. Um, TJP ends up hitting a corkscrew senton for a near fall in this match. Uh, Doki nailed a dive to the floor on TJP that was so freaking scary. Like, Tope Suicida is an apt name for this move because he looked like he landed right on his face. I thought he was dead, and he comes up completely fine, living up to the moniker of, like, one of the craziest wrestlers alive today. Um, the heels end up working over um, TJP in the corner, which I, I don't know. I guess they're all heels essentially, but uh, they end up working over TJP in the corner. And one of the stories in this match is they really try to isolate TJP's leg and take away his base and kind of put their targets on that. And that sort of became a story all throughout the match. Um, Akira comes in, works over Doki. Um, Akira hits a doomsday senton for near fall at 6 minutes and 30 seconds. Uh, Kanemaru hits a double drop kick. Later on, TJP, he's kind of hobbling and selling the knee all throughout the match. And a lot of the stuff that he normally would hit, like the Mamba Splash and, and you know, the different uh, – that sort of like that kick that he does in the in the corner, he, he's just having trouble doing all that. Every time he tries to put someone up, his leg's giving out. Um, him and TJP, they – uh, him and Akira, they're trying to set up for a lot of their double team moves, and TJP is just unable to even base for a lot of that stuff. Um, eventually, around 15 minute mark, we get Doki applying the Doki Choki Triangle Choke on Akira. Uh, Doki ends up hitting a Widow's Peak Neck Breaker on Akira for near fall. Um, we also get Kanemaru hitting a top rope moonsault on Francesco Akira as well. So, after they took out TJP's leg, Francesco Akira was sort of just isolated here just a bit. Um, Doki hits another Widow's Peak Neckbreaker for a believable near fall. TJP ends up making the save. We get a lot of near falls going down the stretch between these guys, back and forth, back and forth. Um, TJP goes for a suplex, but Akira rotates it and lands on his feet. Um, Francesco Akira hits a top rope double stomp on Doki's chest for a near fall. TJP ends up hitting a planche on the floor to Kanemaru. And at that point, we're left isolated in the ring with just Francesco, Akira, and Doki. Akira hits a swinging fa- face plant on Doki and then a running double knees to the back of Doki's head, which is known as the uh, the fireball, um, to score the pinfall win. The last five minutes of this match were extremely back and forth with many believable near falls that were just out of this world. This match was really fantastic. Um I'm a little bit higher on this than I was for the junior heavyweight tag team title match at Wrestle Kingdom, which I went, I believe, about four on this one. I would go about four and a quarter. I heard our friends over at uh, Super J Cast, uh, Joel Abraham, he said that he thought this was the best junior heavyweight tag team title match he's seen in years. I don't know if I'm quite that high on it, but there's a lot of buzz 
for this match and just a lot of um you know a critical acclaim for it uh looking at cage match right now just to kind of give you an idea uh this is the second highest rated match of the evening it's got an 8.48 so that's right about in line with uh about four and a quarter which is where i'm at so really really great match this is something where i'd say if you haven't seen it go out of your way to check it out we had some questions here ginger ninja 666 says do you think yoshinabu kenamaru deserves more respect than he gets the guy is one of my favorites in new japan for some reason and i love it when he gets matches like this junior tag match to showcase how great he still is and i gotta tell you ginger ninja 666 as i was saying earlier during the review yes i i think that kenamaru is a little bit um underrated by some of the audience not everybody but you know i think those old noah heads probably know what kenamaru has and what he's able to do and at times we've seen kenamaru just fit into these different roles whether it's the wily veteran or you know the the veteran mentor in uh, suzuki goon to the various different juniors that he teamed with but lately he's since he's been put in this just four guys stable i think he feels the the need to kind of pull his own weight and go out there and kind of showcase the talents he still has uh, available to him so yes i i think he's great and i've just been um really really impressed with what i've seen out of him so far so this match was awesome um the met the next match of the night was the semi-main event we had will osprey accompanied by the great okan as he took on and defeated tai chi who was accompanied by takamichinoku 22 minutes and 47 seconds he beat him with the stormbreaker and i gotta tell you guys because i'm talking so much i'm gonna take a drink these are typically the types of things that you would not hear me do as i hit the mute button because i would have jeremy on the other line sort of filling in the blank space but it's impossible to talk this long and not get a break and i'm back so um this match was undoubtedly the match of the night will osprey and tai chi are magic with one another uh currently this match is sitting at an 8.90 highest rated match of the night on cage match and i have to concur this was the match that i was most impressed with it might even be possibly my match of the weekend for new japan hard to say but it's definitely in the running and you know, Will and, and um, Tai Chi, they've had quite a few matches against one another. Um, I believe they currently stand going into this match. They were 2-2 two and two prior to this match. And one of the, the interesting things is that prior to this match, Tai Chi had defeated Will Ospreay twice as a junior. But since Will has made the jump to heavyweight, and we're even talking about that time when he was sort of in, the, in that nebulous in-between stage where he was contending for the never openweight title, Will has defeated Taichi twice since that time. So this would have been the fifth and deciding match, and Will obviously defeated Taichi here, going 3-2 and two and sort of uh, gaining the upper hand in their rivalry. But beyond that, Will has set this incredible task for himself that he has all these lofty goals in the next year he has to uh accomplish otherwise he may leave new japan and this is all coming off of the uh the tail end of him losing to kenny omega in the tokyo dome losing the uh, iwgp us heavyweight championship and 
trying to present himself with some of the biggest challenges and tests. And in one of those challenges, he has um, wound up facing Tai Chi at the new beginning in Tai Chi's hometown, no, no less. Um, I liked that Tai Chi came out in an all-white um, entrance attire, which is something we've kind of seen them do in the past for big shows. But there's almost this feeling that with him getting rid of the bleach blonde in his hair, uh, shedding Miho Abe from his, uh, you know, company and kind of just slowly but surely he's becoming a new reborn man, uh, a different Tai Chi than what he's been in the past. And yeah, this match was fantastic. And a big part of the story was the idea that Tai Chi being a disciple of Toshiaki Kawada, one of the four pillars of All Japan Pro Wrestling, him and Will Ospreay went out there with every intention to give us a king's road style royal road style all japan head drop match and that's exactly what they did uh as soon as the bell rang they immediately ran up to each other traded mafia kicks and then spin kicks to each other's thighs big strikes osprey ended up hitting a planche on the floor at this uh two minute mark they brawled on the floor they came back into the ring um osprey was sort of in charge at this point hitting knee strikes to the back as taichi was seated on the mat um, giving him a big backbreaker and a knee for a near fall five minutes and 30 seconds. Um, tai Chi ended up kind of mounting a comeback, nailing a spin kick to the left shoulder and a clothesline. At this point, Osprey starts uh, breaking out some of that junior offense, hitting handspring back spin kicks, and they both go down for a double down at about the eight-minute mark. Osprey hits a top rope flying forearm for a near fall. Tai Chi hit him with a Saito suplex. Osprey started um, adding injury to insult, hitting uh, Tai Chi in the face with Kawada kicks. And then he allowed Tai Chi to hit his own Kawada kicks. They sort of went into this test of strength, sort of uh, mano a mano, I'll, I'll hit you, you'll hit me. And they started exchanging Kawada quick, uh, Kawada kick sequences, which was really fucking crazy. Um, tai Chi ended up switching to a spin kick to the chest in about 12 minutes. And Osprey hit started laying in with some really, really hard chops. Osprey falls to his knees and Tai Chi clocks him with a spin kick to the head. Um, at that point, we get to a point in the match where Osprey is going for the hidden blade, but Tai Chi uh, counters that with his um, sumo forearm shot, which was just an incredible moment. That's about 14 minutes in the match. Osprey ends up hitting a super tiger liger bomb, uh, then goes for an os cutter, gets a near fall at 16 minutes. Um, tai Chi set Osprey up for a Styles Clash, but instead drops him high on his neck. So he ends up giving him essentially a Gonzo Bomb, um, which was insane. Tai Chi hits a running clothesline to the back of the neck for a near fall, then a drop kick, then a back suplex, the dangerous suplex for a near fall. Um, Osprey hits him with the Poison Run in 19 minutes. Tai Chi goes for a. Uh, he actually went up. Osprey goes up for a super Oz cutter. Tai Chi moves out of the way and then hits the Gato Clutch for a really believable near fall. And then um, coming out of that, Osprey hits him with the hidden blade form to the back of the head. Uh, he tries to go for Stormbreaker. Tai Chi avoids it. Osprey hits a back suplex, but Tai Chi pops up showing his fighting spirit. Osprey hits a hidden blade to the front, to the jaw for uh, a very close near near fall. And then um, after that, they trade more forearm shots. Osprey hits another hidden blade and then a Stormbreaker. And uh, 
scores the pinfall in what can just be classified as a fantastic, fantastic classic match. Um, this may be the best match of Tai Chi's career that I've seen. Um, I don't know. He's had some really awesome matches over the past few years. And I feel like the match they had with one another in late 2018, uh, which was the number one contendership for the Never Openweight title, kind of kick-started some of that uh, buzz for this reinvigorated and reinvented Tai Chi. And this sort of was a great companion piece to that match. Um, I was just blown away by both guys. And I know that they both have the goods, but this was like the best of modern New Japan mixed with some of the best stylings, spots, and psychology from all Japan. If you haven't seen this match, I don't know what you're doing. You need to go out of your way and check this out. Um, I'm four and a half on it, and I, I just loved it. 22 minutes, 47 seconds, Stormbreaker. Will Ospreay gets the win here. I had a couple questions. Pearl Poppy asked, Now that Taichi is a faction leader, do you think his ceiling has raised in regards to what he can accomplish in the company? I really thought he had a chance to beat Osprey here just because he recently became the top guy of a faction. And, you know, I gotta say... Um, I think it's always a really good sign when someone is made the leader of a faction. However, I'm not con entirely convinced that just four guys is a finished unit. Um, you hear the commentary team sort of allude that there's some missing pieces. And I, I sort of get that same indication myself. Um, now, moving forward, matches like this do nothing but endear uh, someone like Tai Chi to management. Now, hopefully they don't go the way of, say, like an Ishii and just use him as a utility player in big spots and big moments, but they actually invest in the guy and potentially push him. And the one thing he does have going for him, like you mentioned, is being the de facto leader of faction, although they never have come out and officially said or stated that he is the the true leader of whatever this faction is going to be. Um that being said, I didn't think that he was going to beat Will Ospreay just because Will recently took a, a really big loss against Kenny Omega and he's in the midst of this redemption story arc. And sure, they could have gone that way, giving him a, a surprising uh, loss. And that might have meant some pretty big things for him and Tai Chi going into New Japan Cup in the next couple months. But uh, I think the safe bet here always was that Ospreay would pick up the win. But um, these guys did a hell of a job here and did everything in their power to really make sure that both guys were made here. Rich Latta asked, seeing as how Will Ospreay's career, this is facetious, was ended <laughs> at the Tokyo Dome by Kenny Omega, how did he manage to have a hot match with Taichi that I've seen people going from 4.25 to 4.5 stars on? And, you know, the, the simple answer, Rich, is his career wasn't ended. He's fine. And um, I think we're going to see great things out of him moving into the rest of this calendar year. Um, so that is going to bring us to the main event of the evening. And we had um, a special singles match as Shota Umino was defeated by Tetsuya Naito. 32 minutes. Yes, you heard that right. 32 minutes and 11 seconds via the Destino. And uh, this match was pretty um, decisive 
or I don't know if that's the right word, but um, people are feeling some kind of way about this match. Uh, currently, it's sitting at on cage match with 85 votes. Uh, has a match guide rating of 6.19, which is uh, around three stars, you know. And with that being said, I mean, there's three stars and then there's three stars. And when you have a 32-minute plus match that is being rated by many at around the three-star mark and then others who are uh, a, a much more negative on the match at an even lower rating, that's not necessarily a good thing. But let's talk about the match here. So, you know, Umino, this was one that I was pretty um, pretty high on. Naito's had a, a really great accounting of himself in recent months, especially coming off of that fantastic uh, mini feud he had with Will Ospreay in the summer. And then ever since Umino's returned, he's looked really good. Sure, there's been some things that seem to be missing from his game, but who doesn't have issues like that when they come back from excursion? And ever since him and Naito have been on the opposite sides of programs going back to December uh, for the road to Tokyo Dome, these guys have seemed to just have it out for one another and really just laying into each other, brawling on the outside of various different multi-man matches. And every single time I've seen them work with each other in in that environment it's been really great so and then that combined with Shoto Mino's um recent match with uh Will Ospreay which was uh, several matches with Will Ospreay which were really great as well I thought that these guys were going to go out there and kill it to be honest with you and leading into the match Chris Charlton was talking on the commentary talking about how there's a rocket ship strapped to Shoto Mino he's getting ready to be launched into superstardom and when the match started out i mean i don't know we got a lot of basic reversals and you know extensive filling out process very very slow in the beginning naito stalling on the floor trying to regroup trying to you know regain his composure and ice out shoto mino they go to the floor they do some brawling which was pretty good and then um naito ends up whipping Umino into a guardrail and they do the count out spot. He barely gets into the ring before being counted out. We're at the nine minute mark. And I mean, I don't have much to say. Like they did some feeling around. They did some brawling on the outside, but it was, it was pretty slow, a lot of stalling. Um, And then from there, there's just like a lot of groundwork. Naito's keeping him grounded, leg locks. The ones, you know, if you've seen a Naito match, you know it. He does the, the Yave style leg lock around the neck. Um, at one point, Shota hits a Northern Light suplex for near fall. He applies an STF on the mat. We're about 13 minutes, 30 seconds in. And um, it's not necessarily that this was bad at this point. It's just there wasn't a lot of action. Okay. There there was one point where they did like a running the ropes high spot, you know, exchange. And Umino did the the Naito pose where he rolled onto the ground and did the, the LIJ thing, the standoff, but that was about the biggest high point of the entire match. Um, later on, Naito hits a D, uh, tornado DDT on, uh, Shota hits a tornado DDT on Naito. Uh, Naito hits him with a rude awakening standing neck breaker. They both go down. That's about the 16 minute mat, 16 minute mark. We're like halfway through the match. Um, then, Umino goes back to an STF 
So we're kind of at this point where it's starting to feel kind of weird where like we're not getting a lot of exchanges and spots and something just feels kind of off. These guys are doing a lot of ground submissions and sort of just laying in, in, you know, they call it a rest hold, you know, and I know that they're trying to maybe, I mean, they've teased that Shoto Mino is uh, very prolific and, and um, experienced when it comes to this STF, but I don't know, man. Um, eventually, Umino hits an enziguri, then a spinning neck breaker, 23 minutes and 30 seconds in. Uh, Naito hits him with a side slam for a near fall, then a spine buster. He goes for a Dustino, Umino blocks it, hits a stuffed pile driver. They're down at the 26 minute mark. Um, at this point, you know, we're getting pile drivers and other near falls, so it's picking up a little bit, but then we start getting these moments where they're setting up for stuff and they're stumbling and they seem lost and Umino's repeating moves and eventually Naito hits him with a, a brain buster. They go for a double down. It seems like they're not able to like kind of collect or figure out exactly what they're, they're going for, what they're trying to do. Um, we crossed the 30 minute mark and I'm like flabbergasted that the match has gone this long. Um, Naito goes for a destino Shoto Umino avoids it, hits a DDT. He gets a very close near fall. Naito hits the Destino at that. Uh, after that, he hits uh, the uh, running Destino for a believable near fall. Then he hits a third Destino to or a second Destino. I, don't, I can't count. Uh, scores the pinfall. Um, I don't know, man. At this point, you know, Umino is dejected. He struggles to get to his feet. They kind of look like maybe they're going to shake hands, but then Naito tosses the defiant Umino through the ropes to the floor. Uh, he gets on the mic. He tells the crowd you know, to come back the next night for Hiromu, sends them off happy. He does the LIJ roll call to end the show. Um, you know, what I would call this match, honestly, if I'm just being completely blunt and honest, is not very good. Um, it reminded me in a lot of ways of Naito's match with Kenta when he uh, back at the beginning part of 2020 and the early part of just pre-pandemic where that was an overly long match that I also did not think was very good but it did have a hot closing uh, sequence because Naito hits a gusher and is bleeding all over the place and people really love that but that one also went an unnecessarily long amount of time and didn't have very much heat all throughout of it same thing here In fact, I'll tell you guys this much. Um, I asked for questions, and I mean, I've got the most questions and comments for any subject on this show tonight for this match in particular, which kind of tells you a lot of people had some pretty strong feelings and opinions about this match. That, That being said, I will get this out of the way. I'm hearing a lot of people talking about the blowback from the fan base about what happened here because I had a pretty busy weekend. I try to stay spoiler free and have not really engaged too much with the online community. So I can imagine what the reception and response to all this has been, but I'm not intimately familiar with it all, but uh, let's read some of these comments and, and you'll kind of get an idea. So Rambone slam pig said, in my opinion, 
Shota uh, Naito wasn't up to the New Japan main event standard. Shota seemed to not know what to do when Naito was pandering to the crowd or slowing things down. And the crowd were behind Naito despite Shota being positioned as the babyface. What's the next step for Shota Umino? And I got to agree. Um, if That was another thing is he was coming in as sort of like the quasi babyface. But you've got the anti-hero in, in Naito and... The crowd was probably split like split like ninety five for Naito and five percent for Umino, which was not a good look for a guy that they do have big plans for. Um, and then, yes, they did get lost in this match. There was a lot of s- slowing down. Um, I don't want to pull back the curtains too much, but there are different styles of working a wrestling match and one of the most complex and difficult is the style that they do in new japan pro wrestling specifically and if you're a young guy coming back from excursion like shoto Mino and you're not used to working a 32 minute main event it's going to be difficult with that kind of learning curve um you know i don't want to make excuses for the guy um because it is what it is this wasn't up to the standard but Let's not forget that this is Shota Umino's first major main event ever. Okay, there is that. Um, there's also the fact that a lot of guys that come back from excursion are not ready for this type of test. I mean, they didn't put Jay White and, um, you know, Great O'Conn in similar situations, which does tell you that the company has a lot of faith in a guy like Shota Umino. But at the same time, um, there's very few guys that come back from excursion that could just out the gate do this sort of task so uh, it was a big test i don't think he necessarily passed um you know as far as what's next for him i couldn't tell you i i think there is a narrative here um because of the fact that you know we as fans oftentimes will fill in the gaps for some of these story points in new japan especially since things are very open-ended But we've seen where they've been able to take real-life occurrences, people that have suffered kayfabe and shoot losses and had struggles and difficulties, and they've worked it into the actual narrative itself. So, I mean, even if he'd had a great match, the very fact that he was going to lose kind of lends itself to the idea that Shotumino was going to have a big setback and needed to uh, work up uh, back up the ladder, and that's kind of even more true you know i'm just kind of trying to give you trying to give you the silver lining here obviously uh, you don't want to put on a a match like this on a big show like this that that, that sucks but at the same time i don't think it's unsalvageable is what i'm trying to get at so as far as what's next for him i don't know but you would have to imagine that the new japan cup is going to be part of that so Stale Burger Bun asks, now that Shooter's confirmed, this is again facetious, as a flop as the future ace of the company, should New Japan go all in on Master Wato instead? <laughs> and I would say no. But one thing I would say is look at where Wato is now, and it's been years since he returned in the middle of the pandemic. And he also had issues during his excursion, and people had high hopes for him prior to him returning. A lot of these guys were deeply affected by what went on with uh, COVID-19, and it definitely affected their excursions. And uh, we know for a fact, based on the reports from you know inside sources, that Umino was not uh, immune to that whatsoever. So, um, 
And it's taken a lot of time for Watto to get back to where he is right now to be a viable contender and be a, a trustworthy talent. And so I'm not totally surprised that Shoto Amino has had some issues here. Pearl Poppy asked, what do you think is the best path forward for Shoto Amino? Should New Japan keep putting him in main event matches with their top level guys? Or should he go back down the card and try to progress slash get over more organically? And that's a great question. It, it's pretty difficult to say specifically. I do think that, um, you know, he kind of had a shortcut a little bit to a certain degree when they teamed him up with Mox and Mox was so over and I don't know how much that meant to the Japanese fan base. It might have meant more to a Western audience, but it definitely was something that endeared him to the fan base regardless. And now he's having to kind of get over on his own and he's essentially in some regards i'm hearing people say he's like a dollar store tanahashi you know and i also saw people talking about how him and naito looked similar to one another and it was almost like uh umino was the young version of himself having to close the loop on himself if you've ever seen looper (laughs) um and that's a that's a great observation actually in the fact that a lot of people look at someone like Tanahashi and they're familiar with his uh history but they don't they're not familiar with his early history and they don't understand how long it took for him to work his way up the ranks and get to a place where the fans accepted him and and he was that ace level character who carried the company um there was a point in time probably first like 3 or 4 years of his career that if you told fans watching uh, Tanahashi that he would one day be the most prolific, you know, champion of his era and a guy that would save the company, they would call you crazy and say you were lying because he had a lot of ups and downs and a lot of struggles. And, you know, I see people kind of comparing Shoto Umino to Kazushika Okada, you know, and being like, well, Okada had the one mishap and then turned around and was this prodigy and was you know this super talent it's like yeah and okada's one of maybe five of the greatest wrestlers that has ever lived and he's one in a million there's not anyone else like him it might take time for shoto mino to reacclimate to the company it also might take time for the fans to accept him you know uh, when Great O'Con first came in, he had a great gimmick and everything, but his matches, I, and actually I would say to this date, he's had some very good matches, but I don't know that Great O'Con outside of tags in, in a singles capacity has had a truly great match just yet, but his work has improved, his character work has improved, and people have come to really love and accept him for a lot of different reasons, and you know, I don't think you want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We're, we're still very, very much early into the Shoto Mino experience and, and um, experiment. As far as what they should do next, I think that they should stay the course. I think that they should... Now, I again, do I think he should be in 32-minute main events when he's not ready for that? No, I don't think so. I think you need to accentuate the positives, hide the negatives, and figure out what's what's the best aspect of this kid's personality and, and skill set and go with that um you know right now like i mentioned he kind of looks like tanahashi do i think that down the road we might see a character change a a, a change in 
attire and look and everything. I mean, yes, this kid's only 25. He's got a long career ahead of him. And what you're seeing right now is not the finished product, you know? Uh, it reminds me of like Katsuhiko Nakajima. You know, you watch him in 2009, 2010. He's a whole world different from what you see in 2022, 2021. You know, the, the, we have to give these time these guys time to grow. But um, I don't think they should de-push him. I just think that they need to figure out the best way to utilize him. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Ginger Ninja 666 says, do you think the concern people have been showing towards Shota Amino has been overblown slightly? And like I said, I haven't seen the online discourse, but I have to imagine that if you're watching just this one match and you're saying to yourself, this kid doesn't have the goods, he's done, uh, that's a bit short-sighted and, um, you know, remind me not to necessarily take your opinion on wrestling <laughs> uh, because... He's shown time and time again that he's got a lot of upside, and this company is very, um, very much invested in going with him as a future ace, a future top guy. I mean, we can tell that. I mean, compare and contrast his return from excursion from, you know, any number of guys since Jay White. You know, there, there's very few guys that have come in and made this, been given the same sort of platform that. Shoto Mino's being given right now. So, uh, yeah, I think it is a bit overblown. Okay, okay, 890 said, I'm sure you'll probably address this, but just in case, a lot of people have been really pretty harsh on Umino because of the Naito performance. Some people have already formed an opinion that Shoto Umino does not have it. What's your general opinion on Shota in the Naito match? Was it all bad? And, yeah, I got to tell you, I do think it was pretty much all bad. I, I think that they had, like, two or three decent things but for the most part i thought it was pretty bad uh, do i think he was bad mechanically at wrestling no not at all except for actually down the tail stretch yeah they started botching a lot they started stumbling around and that was probably due to nerves and frustration and being blown up and pr doesn't help things but prior to that like mechanically no i thought he was fine it's the it's the other stuff. It's the psychology. It's the reading of your opponent. It's understanding how to do the right things at the right time to get the right reactions. And those are all things that are missing right now. And I think that they need to work with him on that. Dom Homie 101 said, thoughts on a potential Shota Umino. Um, and what is his ceiling in New Japan? In my opinion, Shota, Shota is the man that the company are behind and i think they're doing right by him so far i think people need to relax and let him grow you 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 become a main eventer talent by working with main event talent 
And yeah, uh, Dom Homie 101, I, I have to agree with you. I think that in order to become a top talent, you have to work with top talent. And unfortunately, prior to now, he hasn't been given the opportunity too much to actually do a lot of that, especially not in this capacity. Um, and yeah, I, if I continue on, I'll be repeating a lot of the same points that I made there. I think I, I concur with what you've sort of said there, but there's no doubt the company is very much behind him. And let's give it some time, guys. I mean, granted, was this uh, was this a failed test? Yes, but it was the first test. If we're like in Dom Mysterio territory and it's two years later and he's not only not uh, improved, but he's regressed, then we might need to start having a conversation, you know, or he, who knows, maybe even six, seven, eight months down the line. But he, this kid hasn't even had a G1 yet. You know what I mean? So <laughs> let, let, let's cool it for just a minute and let's not be so reactionary and let's give him some time to grow. Do I think the company should be relying on him to draw houses and, and set him up to fail in, in big spots like this? No. But again, I did mention earlier, there might be an opportunity down the line for these guys to run it back in a big situation. And can you imagine what the video package or the the video essays might look like when Shoto Mino had this big failure in uh, Hokkaido in Sapporo against uh Umi, you know against Naito in his first big match like I think that's a great story even if the it wasn't intended it's there Finally Dong Bar 1 said even though I think that everyone is jumping the gun on Omino do you think that the real problem is the crowds just aren't uh interested in him so far Naito was trying his best to get some sort of sympathy for Amino, but it felt like they didn't have any. When Amino had the advantage, the crowd was cheering on Naito. Do you think it had to do with the typical young gun versus established vet match structure and the weird crowd dynamic? And yeah, I think that those are all really great points as well. I think, uh, <laughs> thank you guys for the comments and the questions. You're making my job easy. There's a lot of really great thoughts and, and uh, insight here. The um, Looking into what you said here, though, I mean, Naito's one of, if not the biggest star in the company, and in my opinion, didn't do a lot leading into the match to come off as a domineering dick, ass, dick heel, you know? Um, he sort of just did his Naito shtick, and they sort of set up uh, Umino to be this new, young, up-and-coming, you know, star, and he like laid out Naito and everything like that. And if you're a fan of Naito and you're a fan of LIJ, why would you and, – and also Naito's got the big match coming up with Muto and everything like that. I mean there's just a lot kind of going against people to want to cheer against Tetsuya Naito. Plus Umino is so young in his career at this point. I mean there might be a little bit of that like we're feeling – from a fan perspective that he's being force fed down our throats, sort of like the Roman Reigns, sort of like the John Cena thing, sort of like Tetsuya Naito in his early Stardust Genius years, where it's like we haven't, they haven't given the fans a lot of reason to care about him aside from the fact that he carries around a Death Rider jacket, you know, from, from John Moxley. Um, I do think that he needs to find something that belongs to him. So that the, the fans can believe in him and care about him. And they haven't really done a great job of that just yet. And it, it's going to be hard for them to lay out a match where he's getting sympathy 
if A, Naito's not really doing anything in the match to garner that sympathy, anything that's truly sadistic or malicious, and Umino's not giving them something to connect with. So, yeah, all good stuff there. Um, let's jump into night two um, of New Beginning in Sapporo. So we started off the evening with the United Empire team of Francesco Akira, Great Ocon, TJP, and Will Ospreay. They defeated the team of just four guys, Doki, Taichi, Takamichinoku, Yoshinabu Kenamaru, 10 minutes and 11 seconds. Um, at the tail end of this match, Will Ospreay ended up isolated alone with Takamichinoku. He hit Taka with a Michinoku driver to try and add insult to injury. Uh, went for the one, two, three, Taka kicked out, and then he hit him with the hidden blade to get the decisive victory. This was obviously a continuation of the uh, matches we'd seen the, the night prior between Will Ospreay and Taichi, as well as Francesco Akira and TJP against uh, Doki and Kanemaru. Um, at the end of the match, Great Okan cut a promo in the middle of the ring with all four members of uh, the United Empire mentioned how they had three major titles um, and were all four very big stars and that the you know wrestling world was essentially theirs. So very good opening match. Like I've been mentioning, love just four guys, love United Empire. This has been a really great feud for everybody involved. And we move on. Second match of the night, we had the team of El Desperado, Minoru Suzuki, Renarita, and Yuto Nakashima. Uh, defeating the House of Torture team of Dick Togo, Evil, Sho, and Yujiro Takahashi. 10 minutes and 19 seconds. And this match was in many ways very similar to the preview match that we saw the night prior. Um, some of the things that were worth uh, making mention of, we started to see more cohesiveness between Suzuki Desperado and namely Ren Narita. We did get the House of Torture attacking at the beginning of the bell again. Kevin Kelly on commentary kept bringing up the idea that the you know, House of Torture had the six-man belts and will they ever defend them because they haven't defended them in quite a while. And um, again, House of Torture did everything in their power to isolate the young line and kind of work over him. We did get a moment uh, in the middle of the match where everybody was on the outside where Evil and Minoru Suzuki started fighting at the guardrail and they uh evil took a mic and shoved it in Minoru suzuki's face i don't think they're gonna do a singles match but if they do it almost kind of felt like they could go into an i quit match-esque kind of territory there um but house of torture isolated suzuki started working him over in the corner they evil choked him with his shirt um narita ends up getting the hot tag from suzuki uh, he comes in, hits the yes kick, or ends up hitting kicks to Evil's chest, hits Northern Light Suplex with High Bridge for near fall. Yujiro Takahashi gets tagged in, hits a Fisherman Buster on Narita for near fall at 9 minutes and 30 seconds. Uh, he tries to set up a Pimp Juice and jumping DDT. Ren blocks it. Ren hits a Northern Light Suplex on Yujiro. Uh, and then he ties him up in the middle of the ring with the uh, Cobra Twist and gets the 1, 2, 3, 10 minutes, 19 seconds. Uh, we did have a question here from OKOK890 with Yujiro taking pins instead of Dick Togo and uh, Yuto. Do you think House of Torture will soon get a new heavyweight? And I don't know that I necessarily think that. Uh, my thinking here was the night prior, Dick Togo was the one that took the loss. Next after that, Yujiro 
takes the loss. And I mean, you could make the argument that show being a junior should have been the next one to be defeated. But um, I think since Narita is a heavyweight and Ujiro is a pretty low ranked heavyweight, um, it makes sense for them to kind of continue things there. Plus, you know, um, Dick Togo is not one of the six man uh, tag team champions. So it did necessitate for in order for Desperado Suzuki and Narita to challenge for those titles i think they kind of needed to have narita beat one of those guys here um so i am not sure that this was as much uh a sign that they're gonna oust yujiro and bring in bring in an outsider as much as it is just a natural progression of the story um but yeah after yujiro tapped out um we got a moment where Narita is aligning himself with Desperado and Suzuki. They all stood in the middle of the ring. They shook hands. Huge pop for the very first time. Suzuki gets on the mic and he says that the three of them are officially on the same page for the first time ever. And he's challenging House of Torture for the never openweight six-man tag team titles. Evil gets on the mic and says the belts are retired. They're not going to defend them. The crowd boos. Suzuki says he wants a title match next Saturday in Osaka. So... Uh, we're going to have news on that here in just a little bit. Third match of the night. <clears throat> we had the Bull Club team of Taiji Ishimori and Kenta. They defeated Hiroshi Tanahashi and Master Wato. 10 minutes and 41 seconds. Um, Tanahashi and Kenta, again, this is a, a preview match for the upcoming shows later on in the tour. Um, for uh, next week in Osaka. And... I didn't love this match in many ways. It was somewhat similar to the eight-man tag that we'd seen with the similar group the night prior. But, um, you know, it, it was fine. It was fine for what it was. Um, after, like, going down the stretch, we started getting the moment where all these guys were working on, on one another and eventually... Kenta and Tanahashi end up on the outside. Um, and while they're on the outside, we get Kenta and, uh, or I'm sorry, we get Ishimori and Master Wato on the inside, um, you know, trying their best to best one another. Um, Ishimori obviously angry that he was ta uh, pinned clean the night prior. And um, while this is going on, Tanahashi hits a senton to the floor on Kenta, leaving both of them, you know, kind of out of the match. Um, back in the ring, Wato ends up getting his head struck on an exposed steel in the corner where the uh, turnbuckle pad had been removed. Ishimori, in the meantime, rolls him up, schoolboy roll up, with his feet on the ropes for the cheap win. One, two, three. And after the match is over, Ishimori and Kenta, they attempt to jump um, Master Wato. Tanahashi comes in and makes the save, and we get the big standoff. So um, early on in the match, too, Tanahashi and Kenta, when they first started, they um, were kind of teasing, playing up to the crowd, and getting a lot of crowd support. And right when they got all the crowd support for them to face off against one another. Kenta tagged out. It was a pretty funny moment, but not a lot to say here. Match was fine, but um, the interesting thing, Ishimori, uh, I guess clean win. He <laughs> Cheap pinfall win, kind of cheating, but he gets the win here, and the night prior, Wato sort of got an unexpected win. So neither guy able to 
show that they're better than the other, but both of them picking up one, two, threes over one another in these preview matches. Fourth match of the night, we had the team of Hikaleo, Tamatanga, and Jado from uh, Gorillas of Destiny, and they defeated the Bull Club team of Jay White, El Fantasmo, and Ghetto at 12 minutes and 57 seconds. <clears throat> to start the match off, Jay White stopped at the commentary team again, uh, ripped into his opponents, uh, talked about how he's going to oust you know this guy away from New Japan forever uh, in Hikaleo. Uh, Tama and ELP start. <clears throat> They've developed an intense dislike for one another, and they're really showing that here. Um, very good action all over the place with these guys. Um, lots of cheating tactics from the Bull Club team again. Um, around the seven-minute mark, Hikaleo ends up making a hot tag. Jay White scrambles, tries to get away. Uh, Hikaleo's house fire, beating up Gato and ELP on the floor. Uh, when he gets... Uh, Jay White alone in the ring. They are trading chops. Hikaleo hits a mafia kick. Uh, they He double clotheslines ELP and Gato. So he's just really trying to get do everything in his power to get his hands on Jay White and keep these other guys out of the match. Um, Jay White ends up working over Hikaleo in the corner. Hikaleo sets up for a choke slam. Jay White escapes, hits a, a DDT. Both guys are down. Uh, double tag to Tama and ELP at the 10-minute mark. They're brawling again. Tama hits all of his big offense, stinger splash, bulldog power slam. Uh, tries to go for the gun stun. ELP avoids it. Uh, gets a roll-up for a near fall. They, they're trading stiff forearm shots. Um, they hit a su- simultaneous cross-body block. And then Ghetto and Jado get tagged into the ring 11 minutes and 30 seconds. Obviously, a lot of history between Ghetto and Jado. They're the two legal men in the in the ring. Hikaleo hits a power slam on Jay White. This is what I started to mention on the first night, but I got confused. Um, and at that point, Jay White heads out to the outside of the ring. This is on the tail end of uh, the spot that they do in all these multi-man matches where everybody's in, gets all their, their shit in. And uh, there's a lot of confusion. Jay White is acting like he's trying to lure Hikaleo out of the, the match and wants him to come fight him down the rampway. Um, while this is going on, the referee is focusing on the outside, and you've got Ghetto and Jado on the inside. And um, Ghetto grabs the uh, brass knuckles. He tries to hit Jado. Jado um, uh, avoids it. Tama hits Ghetto with a gun stun. Um, Jado applies the uh, Jado cross face, and Ghetto taps out. Um, after the match, Phantasmo. Uh, hits Tama Tung in the head with the Never Open Weight ta- uh, title belt after the bell. Uh, really good match here. Uh, a much better preview than the night before. Um, both ELP and Tama in the White Hikaleo matches were highlighted and showcased in really great ways here. And um, at this point, seeing this, I'm, I'm a lot more um, excited for both of those forthcoming matches next week. After that, we had the fifth match of the night. <clears throat> Excuse me. Kazushiko Kata, Toriyano, Ryazuki Taguchi, and Shoto Mino. They defeated the LIJ team of Tetsuya Naito, Shingo Takagi, Bushi, and Sonata 11 minutes and 2 seconds. And this, again, was a another great uh, preview match for Okada and Shingo for the world title. And then... Um, um, Oh yeah, I guess that's really all that was being uh, (laughs) 
previewed here. Uh, the night prior, we had seen Shoto Amino and Tetsuya Naito, and they're back in the ring with one another again. And um, I was a little upset because they did, again, like I mentioned earlier, they're in a multi-man match. They, they're trying to get heat between these two guys. Match starts. Umino nails a shotgun dropkick on Naito at the bell. Uh, shoves the ref to the mat and starts hitting Naito in the corner. Lots of heat here. Uh, I thought Chris Charlton did a great job talking about how Naito um, had talked about Umino being frustrated after losing to him uh, the day prior. And Umino wanting an immediate rematch. Um, good fire between these two guys. They traded forearm shots. Naito, Naito ended up hitting a standing neck breaker. I don't know where the uh, this heat was the night prior, but it, it, it was non-existent in that match, but it was here on this evening. Um, Yano gets in the match, middle of the match, lots of silly offense and spots with him and Bushi, him and Sonata, um, very similar to the night prior. Okada ends up getting um, tagged in as well as Sonata, and Sonata does a great job early on um big offense on pretty much all the the members of chaos slash hantai um but at the seven minute mark okada hit, hits a drop kick both guys go down kata hits a flapjack on sonata he applies the money clip um sonata gets out of that he applies a skull and dragon sleeper on okada uh naito and shota get back in the ring they're trading more offense uh bushi hits taguchi on the outside with the tope suicida uh, and in the ring, we wind up alone with Okada and Sonata. Okada hits a tombstone pal driver and then a rainmaker clothesline and then a second one on Sonata for the win and the pinfall. One, two, three. A very good match here. At the end, Okada was bleeding from a cut on his back slash right shoulder. Um, Shingo and Okada are arguing at one another um, some more after the bell. So as the night prior, we saw Shingo pick up a 1-2-3 over Taguchi to heat him up going into the world title match next week. Okada picks up the 1-2-3. But the interesting thing here is not over Bushi, who typically would be your designated pin eater. It's over Sonata, who um, has been very, very cold for weeks on end and has been on a somewhat of a losing streak. And you have to kind of wonder where this story is going. But, um, you know, one time him and Okada were considered generational rivals of some sort, even though Okada holds the vast majority of the the victories in their their feud with one another. That's how they used to, uh, you know, position it. But at this point, that seems very long ago. And Okada's at the top of the sport. And uh, Sonata's like outside the top six. He seems to be just kind of like a middle of the road guy at this point, maybe even lower. So very very interesting to see where this uh story is going to be taking him moving forward but uh we get to the sixth match of the night top three matches and uh i gotta tell you um i liked even though i think that they the first night might have peaked the highest potentially maybe not but potentially with uh the match between will osprey and taichi the match that they had here or this um series of three matches at the top of the card might be more consistently better and be the stronger of the two nights and uh we wound up with a match here bishamon hiroki goto and yoshihashi they successfully defended and defeated uh, defended their titles and defeated the mighty don't kneel shane haste and mike mad mikey nichols they retained the titles at 15 minutes and 19 seconds um this match was really awesome. Um, 
I didn't get to see a lot of TMDK and the work that they were doing during the uh, World Tag League because I took that tour off. And uh, thanks to Jeremy and other contributors, they kind of covered that while I was out. But um, I got a taste of it here. Now, the, the video package did show that TMDK were defeated on one of the final nights of World Tag League by the eventual tournament winners, Bishamon, who would go on to win the World Tag Team titles in the Tokyo Dome against FTR. And now we're here after, um, you know, a defeat in a multi-man tag team match on 1-5 at New Year's Dash. Team DK made their intentions known that they wanted uh, another title shot or their first ever title shot, I should say. And they got it here. And this match was really, really, really awesome. Um, it started off with a lot of, um, you know, classic grappling um, between both teams, we start off with Goto and Mikey Nichols. Soon, Nichols and Shane Hayes were tagging in and out, kind of isolating Goto. Uh, we got a moment where everybody brawled to the outside. Yoshihashi hits a senton on haste there on the floor. Uh, in the ring, Nichols gets a neck breaker on Goto for a near fault, four minutes and 30 seconds. Uh, TMDK worked over Goto in their corner. Um, then at one point, Goto whips Mikey Nichols into his own corner and Mikey Nichols did this incredible flare flip over the ropes like and just crashed to the floor. It was just really something. It was really, really awesome. Um, eventually, around the 7-minute, 30-second uh, mark of the match, Yoshihashi uh, gets uh, a hot tag from Goto after he'd been worked on for a majority of the match. He gets a standing neck breaker on haste for near fall. Um, TMDK hit a uh, tower suplex on Yoshihashi from the corner. Kevin Kelly called it the Olivia Newton bomb, which was really funny because that's not the name of the move. <laughs> but um, Yoshihashi eventually comes back. He hits a, hunt, a hunter flipping neck breaker on Shane Haste. Goto gets the double bulldog at 12 minutes. They're trading forearm shots with Nichols. Uh, Goto gets his neck breaker over the knee for a near fall. Um, the Ushiguroshi Bishamon sets up uh, for the Shoto, but they, they there was a miscommunication as to whether they were going for Shoto or one of their other moves because they look similar. And Team DK was able to avoid it, and they hit uh, the same move on Goto that they had hit. I don't know if this is their finisher, but it's sort of like a DDT, but it's like an elevated double team ddt it's the same move that they beat goto with on january the 5th at new year's dash and they got a really close near fall um goto kicks out then they um mikey nichols hits a blue thunder bomb on goto for another close near fall um but eventually um yoshihashi gets in the ring he's able to break things up uh get um shane haste out of there they hit the Shoto and the slam on Mikey Nichols for the clean pinfall. Um, really, really good tag match here. Um, I don't think it was as good necessarily as, say, the FTR versus Bishamon match um, or even Bishamon versus um, Aussie Open from um, the Tokyo Dome and from the World Tag League Finals. But nonetheless... Uh, a very very good title defense i'd probably go like three and three quarters on this one um and for a 15 minute match it was it was just really great lots of back and forth i was very impressed with both teams we have some questions here rambone slam pig said is it just me or are both of the tag divisions in new japan much stronger now than they've been in years past 
Do you think it's just happenstance or a change in booking philosophy that is emphasizing stronger and more cohesive teams and less hot potato booking with the belts? And, you know, I got to tell you, Rambo and Slam Pig, I'm not quite sure. One thing I think it could be, there's definitely been some changes in booking. I don't know if that means uh, changes on the booking committee. I don't know who's making the suggestions. Obviously, you know, Gato is, to my knowledge and understanding, still the head booker. But there's definitely been some changes. Now, as far as, like, the tag team divisions go, I think one of the things that's been happening, um, and you guys could say I'm wrong, maybe I'm crazy, But I think the emphasis uh, on tag team wrestling in the West, especially with the influence from AEW, that might be permeating just a little bit into Japan and into New Japan, namely, uh, to kind of influence them. The other thing, too, is they have so much talent in New Japan currently and so many names. And it's sort of like, what do we do with all these guys? And, you know, there's only so much time and opportunity for all these different individuals it makes a lot of sense for them to go ahead and invest and expand their tag team divisions to create more viable opportunities for underutilized talent and that's sort of what i think is also pushing a lot of this i mean you look at the um catch 22 tag team and i mean sure um that that group united empire was always going to have you know, juniors and, you know, have someone to push. And I think long-term Francesco Akira is probably the guy that they're looking to kind of establish as their like quote unquote junior ace of the group. But both of those guys have so much talent in TJP and Francesco Akira, but they, they didn't have a direct purpose in the junior division at that time. And so it made all the sense in the world to kind of just unify them. And then, um, a lot of these teams are doing such great work. It just makes sense for them to kind of showcase and highlight it. So I think it's, I think it's hand in hand. I think it's the booking and I think it's the management, but I think it's also a lot of the talent as well. It's not just all creative. I don't think. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't think it took much for them to heat up these tag divisions. I mean, I think having the two tournaments in December uh, at the same time was probably a big creative success even if there were things to kind of complain about it just the fact that they're both being emphasized on equal playing levels and giving opportunity to all these different talents both domestically and internationally that's something that's gone a long way and then to kind of see it all culminate on one four there's a lot going on it's all good things it's it's you know it's all great um that one dude colton from twitter asked it's definitely the less hot potato, or actually he was replying to Rambo and Slam Pig, and I liked what he said here. He said, it's definitely the less hot potato booking. I hope Bishamon continues to defend the belts on a regular basis because that long hiatus of no defenses from FTR really took the steam out of the division, in my opinion. And, you know, I got to tell you, I do think that there is something to that. I think that when FTR had the belts, they definitely took some of the forward momentum that the division had gained um and kind of iced it a little bit that being said it's hard to deny the influence ftr had on the division with the great matches that they had with um you know the united empire team of Cobb and ocon um obviously the match of the year that or the tag team match of the year that they had with aussie open 
and then um, the match they had in the Tokyo Dome with Bishamon. And so it's like the peaks are really high, but the walls in between were very low. But I am happy with what they're doing with Bishamon. Um, a lot of people, myself included, thought TMDK were going to pick up the win here. And that would have fit very much in line with the traditional booking that we've patterns that we've seen when it comes to these titles and when it comes to Bishamon in, in particular. But I like what they're doing. I mean, for a long time now, we've said on this show and other you know smart individuals when it comes to New Japan have said like, oh, Bishamon are like the de facto top domestic team in Japan. But that's sort of more so just based on the fact that they've like won tournaments and titles, but they've never been showcased as truly dominant. And in a very short succession, you look at it now, they beat FTR, they beat Aussie Open, and now they've beaten TMDK, and they've won the World Tag League. It's hard to deny their status as one of the top teams kayfabe-wise. Beyond that, the actual matches they're having are fantastic, and it's very. it reminds me a lot of the renaissance that they had uh not last year but the year prior when they were the never six man tag team champions with the Ishii. so yeah this bishamon tag team i mean when you talk about the short list of top tag teams in the world they have to be on that list now and it's not just a uh you know something funny that people say or whatever or just something or like a a new japan fanboyism you, you you hear the new japan fans be like well what about bishamon <laughs> well now it is kind of like well what about bishamon because they fucking rule their matches are really great and you know they're they they need the record they need to be recognized for it so let's move on to the semi-main event we had the njpw world television title was defended the champion zach saber jr along with kosei fujita defeated the challenger tomohiro ishii 14 minutes and 38 seconds he defeated Ishii with the Zack Driver and this was a really 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 close contest uh this one definitely came down to the wire and you know these television title matches have a 15 minute time limit and um the title does not change hands on a draw and they clarified that on the uh commentary here so Prior to this match, both of these guys had won three matches to one another, so they were dead even in their um, feud with each other. So this would be kind of the deciding match as to who goes up in their personal feud and rivalry. Um, And all throughout the match, Zack Sabre Jr. is focusing on the left arm of Tomohiro Ishii. And Ishii, much to the surprise of Zack Sabre Jr., focused a lot on technical ground wrestling early on in the match and you know really was tying saber up into knots on the mat and then and it was kind of interesting because you saw both of these guys go for different um tactics than you would have expected saber kind of getting frustrated with the technical acumen of ishii and his quote-unquote strong style he himself decided to sort of uh devolve into ishii style and sort of uh start implementing a lot of strikes a lot of kicks and european uppercuts and headbutts and stuff like that uh and then ishii was doing a good job sort of mixing in the big shots the big uh you know his big strike offense along with his technical wrestling but as the match went on saber continued to work on ishii's arm and started applying different uh cross arm breakers and tying him up into pretzels and Ishii kind of had to become an escape artist and kept getting to the ropes. 
And then at that point, Ishii starts attacking Saber's arm. Started he he um, started off by hitting a sliding clothesline on Zack Saber's arm, and then they started trading forms with each other. And then Ishii started un- unloading the headbutts and running shoulder tackles. And these guys were just laying into each other. Not to mention all the different fast-paced, uh, you know, reversals and and shifts in in momentum this match was really really fast paced um eventually around the 10 minute mark i noticed tomohiro ishii had blood coming out of his mouth so um very hard hitting uh he ends up hitting a standing power bomb for a near fall in zach saber saber then turns it into a triangle choke um off of the power bomb pin ishii uh reaches the ropes nice really great series of moves there um Ishii ends up putting a, a mid-ring octopus hold slash uh cobra stretch or cobra twist on um on uh Zack Saber Jr. and Zack tries to power out of it and then somehow it gets turned into a code like this the biggest code red for Ishii. Ishii almost pins him, one, two, three. Um at this point, Saber realizes that striking and trying to submit Tomohiro Ishii is not going to win, and he starts spamming um, very complex pinfall combinations. He goes for an O'Connor roll for near fall, and at this point, Ishii starts just hitting him with big offense. Uh, hits a German suplex for near fall 12 minutes. When, when they made the, the time announcement at this point, the crowd started reacting, being made aware that there's only three minutes left in the match. Ishii hits a hard clothesline for near fall. Sabre got a roll for uh, close near fall as well. Uh, Saber goes for a dragon suplex with the bridge, gets the one-two. Ishii uh, hits an enziguri. Saber um, ended up hitting a punk kick to the chest of Ishii. Ishii hit another enziguri, and they're both down at 14 minutes. And the fans are starting to react huge to the one-minute warning. Um, and then at this point, Saber ends up through a series of um, different reversals. Out of nowhere, getting the Zack driver, the sit-out, sit-down pile driver, the one, two, three. And uh, this match was just great. They really teased that they were going to go very close to the, you know, one to, to the um, time limit draw here. And Sabre was phenomenal here, as was t- uh, Tomohiro Ishii. 14 minutes and 38 seconds, Zack driver. We have some questions here. Uh, Strong Style Demon said... Why is Ishii a golden god of wrestling? Is there some kind of backstory to how he became the least awarded best wrestler in the world? This is a general question, but to be topical, we can link it to the latest match against ZSJ. Holy shit, what a wonderful match that was. And I concur, holy shit, that was indeed an incredible match. Um, I think it got a lot of love on Cage Match as well, just kind of taking a look here. Um, That Bishamon tag team match sitting at 7.20, this one... Uh, with the world television title match has an 8.46 so very very good i think about four and a quarter is probably just about right and this was fantastic um as far as ishii being the least awarded greatest wrestler alive i think a lot of it just has to do with his positioning it's it's hard to be recognized as the greatest wrestler of a year or of an era when other guys that are also as good as you, like Kota Ibushi and Will Ospreay and Kenny Omega, Kazushiko Okada, all are competing in the same era. Not to mention he's also always slotted as 
anywhere from low to upper mid Carter. So that probably has a lot to do with it. And, you know, at this point with Ishii's age and his outsider status, it's not really a situation where New Japan's going to invest in him to be like a top guy, you know, when they have other similar younger models like, say, Shingo. <laughs> but, um, yes, he's undoubtedly one of the greatest wrestlers I've ever seen perform or wrestle just, just out of this world. That takes us to the main event for the IWGP Junior Heavyweight title. Hiromu Takahashi, the champion, defended and defeated his challenger, Yo. 29 minutes and 42 seconds. He hit the time bomb, too. And, uh, again, just incredible. And I think that this match was the best match of the night for night two. And it's so good. I think it actually gave Osprey and Taichi a run for its money. And if you told me that you thought this was as good or even better, I wouldn't argue with you one iota. That's how good this was. Um, Hiromu and Yo leading into this match, they'd had six prior engagements. I think the best match they'd had was that best of the Super Junior final that was sort of uh, interrupted by a recently turning turned heel show um but i've never loved any of the matches that these guys have had against one another prior to this and they went out there and they had a big task in front of them i mean hiromu has been lobbying for a long time for juniors to headline these big shows with the junior title and it doesn't happen that often and in in the past there have been times where they've given him the opportunity to do this and it kind of flopped but this was not that at all i mean first things first they outdrew the first night with naito and umino on top which is a huge feather in the cap of hiromu and yo um and then the other thing too is this match was just blow away fantastic um they started the match, you know, with a very intense lockup at the very beginning, very slow pace, very slow pace in the beginning. But then they started brawling to the floor, and from there, uh, Hiromu was just very uh, vicious. He threw Yo into the guardrails time and time again. I liked some of the bumping that Yo did on the outside there. Uh, Hiromu hits a sliding drop kick for a near fault three three minutes and thirty seconds, and then they they brawled back to the floor. Yo got whipped into the guardrail again, and then Hiromu hits a snap suplex on the cement where they have the thin the thin mat, like it's it's just the carpet uh, leading up the entrance ramp at five minutes and thirty seconds, and um, Yo almost doesn't get in the ring. He gets into the ring just to break up uh, the the count out at nineteen, so one more second and he would have lost. Uh, and then from there they go into a vicious chop exchange, and this is where things really started to heat up. Uh, these guys were just lighting each other up with huge chops. Hiromu hits a drop kick. They both go down at eight minutes and thirty seconds. Yo hits a flip dive to the door to the floor. Uh, they go back in the ring. Uh, Yo hits a missile drop kick. Yo hits Falcon Arrow. They're they're both doubled down. Um, then they get up and then they start trading forearm shots for an entire minute. Um, they start trading drop kicks. Uh, there was a huge drop kick slash knee that yo landed on Hiromu. That was just incredible. And afterwards, Hiromu grabbed his left leg in pain. Um, and yo starts working on the leg from that point. He, uh, does dragon screw leg whip. 
uh, twisted the leg into the mat. And I know what you're probably thinking. I know, I know another body part match, but there's body part matches and then there's fantastic body part matches where it makes all the sense in the world and it's believable and it's very, very good. And that's what this was here. Um, Yo ends up hitting a, a superplex going back to a leg lock, trying to get the submission. He applies the figure four leg lock at 16 minutes and 30 seconds. There's a couple times where Hiromu was playing fast and loose with the, uh, the tap out, um, rule here. He was doing that, that Brazilian tap, you know, you tap one time and (laughs) maybe the guy will let go. And even, uh, red shoes was like, "Are, are you tapping or not? But, um, they get to their feet. Hiromu hits a huge headbutt. Uh, we start getting German suplexes and clotheslines and everything like that. 19 minutes and 30 seconds, both guys are down. Um, Hiromu ends up hitting a huge Death Valley driver into the turnbuckles. Uh, Yo hits a giant clothesline. Um, and then from there, they start... Uh, oh, yeah, Yo attacked the damaged knee of, um, of Hiromu again. Yo ends up hitting a poison run about 24 minutes into the match. And then a huge super kick for a believable near fall. Um, from there, he hits uh, Ushiguroshi, dragon suplex with a high bridge, trying to get him out of here. Hiromu's just not, you know, willing to lay down. And then Hiromu hits the time bomb to really swing the momentum, gets the near fall, and both guys are down. They get up. Yo tries to go for the direct drive. Hiromu escapes. Hiromu hits a stunner. And then a butterfly pile driver for, uh, and that, this butterfly pile driver, I don't even know if that's the right name for it. It's almost like a J driller, but inverse. Uh, I've seen him do it a couple handful of times in the past, but it's been a while, 28 minutes in, and this thing is really, really cooking. Um, both guys are going for uh, elaborate near falls. Yo tries to go for O'Connor roll. Hiromu tries to go for the Hiromu pin. Neither of those two things work. Hiromu hits a super kick and a clothesline. And then the time bomb two for the one, two, three in an incredible, incredible match. Just incredible. In fact, I'll go as far as to say I think this is one of the best junior title matches I've seen in New Japan in years. Um, I think it's probably most likely better than almost every Desperado uh, and Ishimori title match over the past couple years. And it, it, it really went to show you that, A, Yo has the goods. Even though he doesn't always – he hasn't always put it together in this match, he really put it together and it was incredible. And Hiromu is still Hiromu. Even if he's not the guy that can do the death-defying crazy stuff, flying to the outside and, and risking his neck and his body night in and night out, he can go out there and have a hell of a war. And – when I was watching this match, the thing that kept popping into my mind was the idea that this was really high stakes and high level human chess. It reminded me of like the same kind of philosophy behind like an MMA match because these guys were trying everything in their power to get rid of the guy in front of them and neither of them was willing to go away for the longest time. And yeah, this had a lot of heat, a lot of passion. Um, if you haven't seen it, you got to go out of your way to see it. There were Great matches on both evenings, but um, this was the match of the night on night two, for sure. Post-match, Hiromu's lying on his back. Uh, he gets on the mic. Um, he commends Yo for the match that they just had. He said he said that he didn't know that Yo had that him, in him. He thanks the crowd for coming out. Um, 
And even though it wasn't a hundred percent sellout and he feels a lot of pressure as champion, it's his job to fire up the crowd and to get people to come out. Um, he mentioned that Shingo has to complete the hat trick for LIJ by winning the title next week from Okada. And, um, after he left the ring, he walked up to Desperado, who was on commentary, and waved the title in front of him, taunted him with the belt. And he made mention on the uh, commentary that this was his goal, that you know juniors could headline big shows and draw, and he's got to live up to that expectation as the champion since he asked for it. So great, great, great uh, closer. Much, much better main event than the night prior. Did have a question here from Guide to uh, actually a couple wrestlings, a uh, couple questions. Pumping Vama said, "Is Yo still a hoe?" Uh, in addition, okay, okay, eight ninety said, "Is Yo still a hoe?" But seriously, Yo impressed me a lot. What did you think would be next for Yo now with his resurgence? And um, you know, um, I I've always said this: Yo and Show are two guys that I think should be leading the company and have not thus far. But if Yo can continue to go out there and have matches like this, he will no longer be on the host status. He will be a top star, top contender status, maybe even future champion. So I was very impressed. I love this match. I, I'm probably four and a half on it. Um, Guide to Wrestling said favorite match of the two nights and best match of each show. And um, it's kind of the same question. But uh, <laughs> um my favorite match was also the best match both nights, and that would be um, Tai Chi versus Osprey on night one and Yo versus Hiromu on night two. So uh, with that being said, let's jump into the preview for New Beginning in Osaka next week on February the 11th, Osaka Perfectual Gym in the Edian Arena, Osaka, and this show is sold out. Now, I don't believe it's a full, full, full capacity sellout. I think it's um, based on what I've looked into. It's probably like a two thirds full sellout, but that is still quite an accomplishment and something that New Japan should be very proud of. Um, going down this preview, and I'll be very brief. Oscar Luebe and Toriano are taking on the United Empire team of Aaron Hanara and Great Khan. Second match of the night: Rizuki Taguchi, Shoto Amino, Tiger Mask, and Tomoaki Hanma. We'll be taking on the LIJ team of Bushi, Hiromu, Sonata, and Tetsuya Naito. Special singles match. We have Taiji Ishimori and Master Wato facing off against one another. Fourth match of the night, Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Kenta. Fifth match of the night, never openweight six-man tag team titles are officially on the line as Desperado, Suzuki, and Renarita challenge the House of Torture team of Evil, Show and Yujiro Takahashi. Sixth match of the night, loser leaves Japan match. We have Jay White versus Hikaleo. Seventh match of the night, the never openweight title is on the line as Tamatonga defends against ELP, El Fantasmo. And then the main event, the IWGP World Heavyweight title is on the line as Kazushiko Kata, the champion, defends against his challenger and former champion, Shingo Takagi. And um, I'm just going to go over the major matches here. So, um... Unlike the other major shows on the New Beginning uh, Tour, this is the biggest of, of the nights and has the most stacked lineup. And we only really have two preview or two like uh, undercard level matches to start the night off. Um, the third match of the night, we have Ishimori versus Master Wato. And um, Wato came very close to pinning Ishimori 
in the most recent match that they had um, on Sunday where he hit that uh, I don't know what you want to call it but it's it's like a um, a crucifix bomb pin it's the same maneuver that he beat Ishimori with um, late last year in that mixed tag team match they had against one another um, and Watto's kind of the guy that's on the, the rise with his trajectory ever since the uh, ever since he pinned Ishimori in that match and ever since they kind of made him the highlighted star during the um, four-way tag or the four-way man match for the IWGP junior title at uh, Wrestle Kingdom where he came up just a little bit short and Ishimori is a big big test for him and we've seen him in big tests in the past singles matches against guys like Robbie Eagles things like that but I think the time is now for them to invest and give Watto a solidifying finishing win here so i think he needs this a little bit more than ishimori does i'll be a little bit surprised if Ishim- even though ishimori normally would be your betting favorite i just think wato has more momentum and upside so i'm i'm gonna say they go with wato here um after that you got tanahashi versus kenta and these guys this is like the feud that will never end uh two generational talents who you know were at the top of the wrestling world in competing uh companies at the same time a decade ago and ever since kenta's come over to new japan these guys have just uh been at each other's throats and had numerous matches some great some not so great some very violent uh that match at wrestle kingdom put kenta on the shelf for quite a while and i think kenta as a character hasn't forgotten that tanahashi lately has seemed to be less than himself and i've been saying that for a while but it's becoming even more so apparent um you could always go that way, and I, I don't think either guy necessarily needs the win because I don't see the company necessarily going with either man as a top-end star anytime in the near future. But with that being said, Kenta is getting ready to gear up for a strong openweight title shot against Fred Rosser in North America um at battle in the valley on february 18th and so with that being the case he probably needs to win a little bit more than tanahashi does so i would say expect to see kenta defeat tanahashi via possible nefarious means he might even just hit him with the go to go to sleep and pick up the one two three uh when it comes to the never open weight six-man tag team titles um they may potentially have despy suzuki and narita win these belts they've had stranger trios than them do it in the past and house of torture have been they've been holding these titles for quite a while even when they dropped them briefly they got them right back they haven't defended a lot they haven't done much with them so it might be a good idea to get uh gold on renderita for the first time and um kind of give desperado and suzuki something to do while they're not embroiled with the top-end acts of their respective divisions. But I think there might potentially be money in a Suzuki-Narita feud. They, they teased so much dissension between these guys leading up to this match. I wouldn't be surprised if they lose, and then there's a falling out afterwards. Of course, you could go the opposite way if that's where they're trying to go and have them win the titles and then do the eventual break the eventual breakup and split later on but um i'm gonna say house of torture retains here that's just my feeling i could be wrong here 
Next match, that loser leaves town match with Jay White and Hikaleo. I don't know what that means. I don't know what is going on with this. Um, you know, the idea essentially, it, this stems from the old territory days, loser leaves town, which usually means loser leaves the territory. And if one of these two guys leaves and they have to stick to that, um, you know, stipulation, then they're out of Japan. But does that mean they're out of New Japan as a whole? Does that mean they can't work for, say, Tamashi or New Japan Strong in some respect? Or does this mean we're writing them off and they're leaving to become a free agent or go work for WWE or AEW or some other company? Um, it's really hard to say. And then when you had competing stories come out um, in quick succession saying that, you know, Jay White's leaving and he's going to WWE and then same thing with Hikaleo and Tamatonga, um, it makes it very difficult to ascertain what really is going on. We do know Jay White has other dates with New Japan after this uh, for Battle in the Valley, but if he lost here... That could be a send-off. And of course, like I mentioned, this might all just be an in-promotion storyline where one of these two guys loses, leaves Japan for some period of time, and then is brought back under some sort of you know other stipulation in the future. They might just go to America for a while. I, I don't know. Um, Marukenta did ask, what would be the bigger loss, Jay White in the main event scene or Milano's hysterical laughter during Hikaleo's matches and you know I don't watch too much of the Japanese commentary so I'm not familiar with Milano's laughter during Hikaleo's matches so I might need to tune in and check that out but um you know that is kind of the big catch-22 you're either losing a guy that's already at the top of the main event scene and one of your biggest players or you're losing someone that is slotted to be potentially one of the biggest players in the company and a, a main event superstar in Hikaleo um, I'm going to just say I think Hikaleo is leaving and Jay White is staying. And I've been back and forth on this and I don't feel firm on it. And my mind might change five minutes from now, but that's just what I'm saying now. Um, Jay White wins and Hikaleo leaves. <laughs> Seventh match of the night. Um... But I will say I am excited for that match. I think um, even though I, I didn't love the work they did in America against one another, the uh, the work they've done in the preview tags has been really great. So never open weight uh, title match, Tamatonga versus El Fantasmo. And my feeling is if Hikaleo's leaving and the, and the story is that there's interest in him and Tamatonga, now might be the time like one Cody Rhodes where they read the tea leaves and they say it's time to leave the territory. Maybe this is the highest Tamatonga can go in the company. And him and, um, you know, G.O.D., they spread their wings and they they leave and go for, uh, you know, the different pastures. They go, they go to New York. And maybe this is the time that ELP ascends the ranks. We already know that he is, you know, making this transition from junior to heavyweight. Um so it might be his time. There's another way of, of thinking about it too. I think I think ELP winning is probably the right way to go. I know Tamatonga just regained the title. And, uh, well, I guess, I don't know. I, I, I'm kind of analyzing this all on the air with you guys live. Um, if Jay White is the one that loses, for sure, 
then I think there might be a case that ELP should win here or ELP should oust Jay and be established as the leader of Bull Club going into this match and thereby reigniting his feud with G.O.D., Tamatonga, the Bull Club, ELP, all that sort of stuff. So maybe that would be a good idea. Then again, if Tamatonga were to win and he's staying and he beats this new leader of the Bull Club in El Fantasmo, that might give ELP and them something to chase after a little bit. So a few different ways you could go with it. But um, if Tam is losing, or ELP should definitely, or if, if Hikaleo and Tamatonga are leaving, then ELP should 100% win here. But um, I'm going to lean more towards ELP picking up the win here to kind of send him down that Will Ospreay track of things. And then finally, the main event, you have Kazushiko Okada versus Shingo Takagi, which I believe is most likely the reason that this show sold out, in, a, in addition to numerous other things. Uh, big feather in the cap to both of those guys, especially Shingo Takagi, showing that he is a, a draw at the top of the card. Um, and these guys, all their matches against one another have been you know, fantastic, top to bottom. People love them, they rave about them, and I think this will be another one of those... Um, another one for the record books for them but there's no way Okada's losing this title in my opinion he's getting ready to gear up for a match with Keito Kiyomiya and I think he needs to go into that match as the the champion as well Shingo Takagi is the current reigning KOPW champion so I just don't think it's feasible that he beats Okada here Dom Homie 101 did ask how high are the odds of Okada losing his IWGP heavyweight championship before his big match against Keito Kiyomiya and I think they're relatively low so that is going to do it. Uh, next week, Jeremy Donovan will be back here on the show. We will be uh, reviewing New Beginning in Osaka, and I'm very much looking forward to that show. It looks great top to bottom. Now, um, you, if you don't want spoilers, you may want to skip forward a few minutes uh, because on February 3rd and February 4th, we had events from Tamashi, uh, Tamashi 3 and Tamashi 4, uh, from Australia. So I'm going to read over those results. We don't have a lot to discuss here because these haven't made tape yet, but I wanted to make mention of it just so that it's noted that this is kind of happening in the same, uh, you know, wrestling spectrum of New Japan. So New Japan Tamashi 3, February 3rd, uh, taking place from Selena's Entertainment Center in Sydney, New South Wales, Australia. Uh, we had eight matches. Jessica Troy, she defeated Charlie Evans, 5 minutes and 47 seconds. The, Veloci the Velocities defeated Jordan Allen Wright and Nikolai Anton Bell, 10 minutes and 41 seconds. Carter Dreams defeated Jake Taylor, 9 minutes and 58 seconds. Four Nations, the team of Adam Hoffman and Mick Moretti defeated Richard Mulu and Victor Langas, 11 minutes and 26 seconds. The United Empire team of Aaron Hanari and Kyle Fletcher defeated the Rogue Army, Bad Luck Fale, and Jack Bonza by DQ, 12 minutes and 43 seconds. Liberd Lucci, who is, I believe, a new entrant into the Bullet Club. He was invited by Jack Bonza and Bad Luck Fale. And, you know, I really have to wonder how kayfabe and true these Bullet Club members from you know oceania really are when they're invited by bad luck folly because i mean me and me and uh jeremy Donovan had a huge 
debate about this for the longest time when it came to uh, Gino Gambino. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Liber Lucci, OG Bullet Club, defeats Andrew Villalobos 13 minutes and two seconds. Ricky South defeated Michael Richards in the semi-main event, 13 minutes and 12 seconds. And then in the main event, Robbie Eagles defeated Aaron Solo, 14 minutes and 23 seconds. The next night, uh, February 4th, from Croxtonen, Melbourne, Austra- from the Croxtonen in Melbourne, Australia, we had Tamashi night four. Um, first match of the night, Gore and Jake Andrew Watha defeated Nikolai Anton Bell and Shep Alexander. Second match of the night, Richard Mulu defeated Jarvis. Third match of the night, Rogue Army Tag Team defeated Andrew Villalobos and Michael Richards. Fourth match of the night, the Natural Classics, that's Stevie Philippe and Tomei Philippe, defeated Jake Taylor and Jordan Allen Wright. Fifth match of the night, Mitch Waterman defeated Liber Lucci by DQ. Sixth match of the night, Aaron Solo defeated Slex. Semi-main event, and what I'm hearing is being called a match of the year contender. We don't have tape on it, but a lot of reputable and knowledgeable fans who were there live are saying that this is outstanding blow away like blow your mind good so i hope it lives up to the reputation but uh the united empire and aussie opens kyle fletcher defeated robbie eagles in singles action huge win there and then in the main event caveman ug defeated the united empire's aaron hanari kind of a surprising uh result there in the main event so let's move on to the news we got some news stories here uh kota abushi has officially left New Japan for Wrestling. We made that mention that he was a free agent last week on the show. New Japan put out their official statement saying, with the conclusion of his contract period on January 31st, 2023, Kota Ibushi has departed New Japan for Wrestling. Ibushi has been recovering from injuries since October 2021. We apologize to Ibushi, um, his fans, for the abrupt announcement and join them in wishing Ibushi the very best in all his future endeavors. So as we made mention last week, there are some, um, you know, new dates for Ibushi here in the States. But one of the more interesting um, talking points, and I'm sure we're not going to talk about Kota Ibushi much more moving forward. Um, but I thought that this was worth mentioning. There's talks of, actually the discussions are underway right now, that Ryzen, which is an MMA uh, promotion, it's like the spiritual successor to Pride, um that they have made an offer for Kota Ibushi to come uh, work for them and potentially do shoot fighting. And then I think they're also potentially trying to make their way into professional wrestling as well. And they want him to have a boxing match with Manny Pacquiao. Yes, that Manny Pacquiao in Ryzen. And Ryzen has also in the past had uh, Floyd Mayweather come over and do a couple uh, boxing matches for them in the past. So, uh, that there is precedent there that this could actually happen. Dom Homie 101 said, Thoughts on the rumors of a possible fight between Manny Pac-Man Pacquiao and Kota, the Golden Star Ibushi. And I got to tell you guys, um, I know Ibushi is, an, is one of the greatest wrestlers that's ever lived. And I know he's got a combat sport background. I know he was a K2 level um, you know, karate practitioner in his younger years. But I saw this man training mitts not that long ago, and he was making horrible, horrible mistakes. Throwing the jab, bringing it down by his chest. Throwing the hook, bringing it down by his chest. No head movement, no blocking. 
he just did not look like a guy that knew how to actually strike on that level, um, which would kind of make sense because he's a He's a karate guy. <laughs> um, and I say that as respectfully as possible. But, you know, he does. it's it's a different game than boxing. And Manny Pacquiao is one of the greatest boxers that has ever lived. Um, Manny Pacquiao would fucking destroy Kota Ibushi in a very, very short period of time. Doesn't matter about the size difference. He would fuck up Kota Ibushi. I did see Kota Ibushi um, make comment on this. And he did confirm the talks. And... His, his whole thing was that not very many people would ever get the opportunity to fight a legend like Manny Pacquiao, and he would see it as an honor. So take that for what it's worth. Um, in other news, Tokyo Sports did an interview with uh, Tetsuya Naito, and there was a rumor going around. We didn't discuss it on this show, but there was a rumor that was spreading through the internet that uh, Tetsuya Naito was being confirmed as a full-fledged freelancer as of you know, very recently and he was no longer signed to new Japan pro wrestling. We didn't even talk about it on the show because it was such a ludicrous assertion. And we knew for a fact that he was a hundred percent signed to new Japan. But during this, uh, Tokyo sports interview, he debunked that notion. He is officially signed with new Japan. And in fact, he just re-upped his, um, uh, contract with them and got a, a modest raise as well. So, um, yeah, everyone who thought he was a freelancer just because his picture posted up as uh, someone in NOAA, they do that for everybody that works for their company, whether they're part of the company or not. So, yeah, that, that was kind of crazy. Um, they've made the official announcement that Kenta and Fred Rosser are, uh, will be fighting on February 18th at Battle in the Valley, as I mentioned earlier. Um for the never or for the uh njpw strong open weight title if rosser wins he will be at eight defenses and he will have passed tom lawler for having the all-time defense record for that title so um i think kenza is going to win but we will see um additionally zach saber jr post-match issued an open challenge for his tv title at battle in the valley he made mention of the idea that People online and different wrestlers were complaining that this title is supposed to be a youth title and he's only defended it just now against Ishii, who's in his 40s. So he put out an open challenge for some of those young blokes from the uh, LA dojo. So don't be surprised if Alex Coughlin or Gabe Kidd end up fighting Zack Sabre Jr. for the TV title um, at Battle in the Valley, which sounds awesome. Um, in other news, the Bull Club's uh, team from Impact, Ace Austin and Chris Bay, they had a rematch from Super Junior Tag League against Kushida and Kevin Knight on Impact this, pack, this past week, and they defeated Kushida and Kevin Knight for a second time. And I believe that is available on New Japan World, or if it's not, it will be made shortly. Kevin Kelly and Chris Charlton have been in the studio recording numerous matches from Muto's career for his retirement. And those are expected to be made available on New Japan World very shortly. So uh, if you want to take a look at retrospective on Kichimuto's career from his early inception as a young lion until his last years in the company, they'll be making that available in English shortly. The All-Star Junior Festival on March 1st, 2023, um, we've have learned that the February on February 25th, the full card's going to be made available. They have, as of now, already listed 11 different competitors that will be taking place for that event. Um, so far, we have listed Hiromu Takahashi, El Desperado, 
and Taiji Ishimori from New Japan Pro Wrestling. Additionally, Amakusa from Noah, Dragon Kid from Dragon Gate, uh, Atsuki Aoyagi from All Japan Pro Wrestling, Musashi from Michinoku Pro, Yuki Ueno from DDT, Billy Ken Kid from Osaka Pro, L. Lindemann from Glate, and Volador Jr. from CMLL have all been made and confirmed as participants in the All-Star Junior Festival, which sounds awesome. And then um, earlier today, Fantastica Mania, um, they put out the press release that it's back on the New Japan calendar, six events across a one-week period from February 22nd uh, till the 28th, live on New Japan World. The full cards are now available. I'm not going to go over the full cards, but a couple things that were made mention that are highlighted here. February 22nd, there will be a Relevos Increblas. Um, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly or not. Um, but there will be that type of match action. And what that is, that's uh, a tag team battle where rivals are forced to become partners. So they made mention that uh, Ultimo Guerrero and Atlantis Jr. will be taking on the team of Hiroshi Tanahashi and Mystico on that evening. The next night, there will also be another mixed match tag team match as Volador Jr. and Mystico take on the team of Atlantis Jr. and uh, Templario as well. There will be a uh, uh, mixed match as show from House of Torture teams up with Hechi Cero and Magia Blanca to take on Hiroshi Tanahashi, Desperado, and Ultimo Guerrero. February 24th and 26th, there's going to be a two-night tag team tournament. Four factions will be represented as Los Depredaros, the Predators, that's Volador Jr. and Magia Blanca, um, they will be taking on the mixed match team of Ultimo Guerrero and Atlantis Jr., who will be waving the flag of Los Guerreros in Creblas de Atlantida. Um, additionally, Ray Cometa and Dolce Gardenia will be taking uh, from the team of Los Dolces Atrosuenos, that's the sweet, dream cre- <laughs> the, the sweet Dream Catchers, will be taking on the LIJ de Japon team of Teton and Bushi. So um, that first match will, those first two matches will take place on the 24th, and then the finals will take place on the 26th. Um, on February 27th, the CMLL World Welterweight Championship title will be on the line as Teton defends his belt against Soberano Jr. Teton is nearing a 1,200-day-long title reign. His title reign is the longest in the 31-year history of that title. Um, on that same evening, Volador Jr. will be taking on Templario in um, singles action. And then the main event of the final night in Corken Hall, we'll be seeing um, legend Mystico take on up-and-coming young rising star Atlantis Jr. in the main event. Last couple of bits of news before we take some questions. Francesco Akira and Andrew Everett have been advertised for a match on March 4th, 2023 from a, a company called Zaj Grandeur. Uh, that was made uh, known on Twitter today. February 23rd, CMLL's Torneo in Creble. Um, that will be another tournament of mixed match stars. And I believe from what I can see on the poster, it looks like Rocky Romero and Volador Jr., who are currently feuding, are going to be teamed together during that tournament. So that should be very, very interesting. Um, Rocky also defended the CMLL historic world welterweight title versus Yuya Uemura on the Jericho Cruise and was successful in defending that title um, just this week. And then finally, Chris Bay and Ace Austin won the Wrestling Revolver Tag Team titles on February 2nd, 2023. So let's jump into some questions and then um, talk about recommended match of the week and we'll get out of here. So a couple quick questions. OKOK890 asked, 
would you be would you be opposed to Taichi winning the New Japan Cup? And do you think it's likely? And you know, I gotta tell you, um, I prefer for somebody to win the New Japan Cup in a situation where it's likely that they could or would win the heavyweight title when they challenge for it. And I'm pretty sure most individuals would agree with me that if Taichi wins this tournament, he has little to no shot at actually winning the world title. That being said, there might not be a better way to elevate a man of Taichi's status than having him win the New Japan Cup. Um, it would be bold and daring and kind of a new um, direction creatively, something that they haven't done recently when it comes to the New Japan Cup in, in the last couple of years. Um, I would be all, I'd be all for it. I wouldn't be opposed to it at all. I, I don't think he has a realistic chance of beating Okada at this current time, but that might be the next stepping stone for a guy like him. He really had an incredible accounting of himself in that match with Osprey. And for anyone that saw that and think it's just an Osprey carry job, I, I think you're potentially missing the point here. Taichi is someone who I think could be a top act in New Japan domestically. He's got a lot going for him. Um, and I think a New Japan Cup win would be a great a great thing for him. Uh, next question he asked, Okan and Osprey have expressed wanting a Joshi United Empire member. How would that work? Would they still be part of Stardom uh, Faction because of how faction-based Stardom is? And I got to tell you, I really have no clue. Um, I'm not the biggest expert when it comes to Joshi or Stardom for that matter. Um, and I've seen people kind of postulate similar situations and what would be the... What would happen if someone was part of a, a faction in New Japan, like a men's faction, but, you know, and all that sort of thing? And I, I just don't know the answer. I think it's highly unlikely, but if they are pushing for it, maybe it could happen. I don't know. But, you know, the United Empire did have a, feel, a female member in the past in Brie Priestley, and she got uh, <laughs> she got Ozcuttered out of the out of the group, so... <laughs> If I was a Joshi, I might uh, I might think twice about wanting to join up with those guys. <laughs> um, Emerald Burning Hammer asked, um, "Why Nuge not putting the IWGP title on Tai Chi this year is a crime?" Uh, <laughs> um, hey, you know he might have something there. If you did hypothetically want to elevate elevate Tai Chi to that level, now might be the time. He's not a spring chicken. Um, he's probably working at the highest level that he ever has before. And if you wanted to go that way, you absolutely could. I don't know that I would classify it as a crime. Um, you know, when we live in a world where Tomohiro Ishii is probably never going to win the title, but, uh, it is what it is. So Joe Mama 9719 said, uh, so I was watching this weekend show and I came across something I'm not sure of that maybe you can provide some clarification on. In regards to the new faction that consists of Taichi, Kinemaru, Doki, and Taka, how many guys are there after all? Sorry, I misspelled my glasses. Um, I didn't see your misspelling, so uh, all apologies there. But um, there are just four guys in the faction named just four guys. I know it gets a little confusing, but there happens to just be four of them for now. Uh, 
<laughs> Dom Homie 101 said, it's been a minute, but I'm back. And he's got a lot of questions. So he said, thoughts on the end of the clap crowd. What would, what would um, some things that would be remembered from this era? What are the top matches from the clap crowd era? And, um, you know, it's kind of a whirlwind. I don't quite like classify my new Japan like wrestling experience the same way other people do. Like I know a lot of people are like there's before the clap crowd and then afterwards and yada, yada. And for me, it just kind of all blends into one another, especially for how long it persisted. But, um, you know, I think some of the things that people are going to remember during the clap crowd era is probably like, um, Naito's failed title run, um, house of torture and the elevation of evil and how much of a blunder that was, uh, the rise of Desperado as a top act in the junior division. Um, the rise of Will Ospreay. The rise of Shingo Takagi. The rise and fall of Kota Ibushi. Um, a lot of things. I mean, those are sort of the things I kind of look to. I mean, as far as like the clap crowd, like the the idioms of that sort of whole thing with like, empty audiences and then you know there was like where they had the weird sound makers and the stuff like that i don't know um clap crowd and covid gave us kopw (laughs) um we also had some of the best matches of all time between shingo and will osprey those kind of stand out to me i think some of the matches between hiromu and desperado stand out um we saw the rise of um, Tamatonga as a singles act that was something that, that has to kind of be applauded and remembered um, Jay White was in America for a very very long time and you know that's another thing I don't know what's going to happen with that depending um, so yeah um, I'd like to kind of put the clap crowd you know whole thing behind me I don't want to remember too much of it and just kind of move on because shit's getting hot so <laughs> Um, he said thoughts on the junior all-star show may be leading to a super J cup tournament in 2024 to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the first super J cup. I love that idea. And I hope that happens. And I would love for this all-star show to lead to more cooperation and more stories and more, uh, interaction between, uh, juniors from across different companies. Definitely. He said, is it too late for Hiromu to have a run at heavyweight? And, um, that's an interesting question. I don't know if I agree with that, but I've always said that I think Hiromu might not have the right frame for what they look for, meaning New Japan management, for him to be a heavyweight. And we are, even though I know like we're getting to the point where it's like, okay, he's done pretty much everything there is to do there. I think he's doing a lot right now to kind of spearhead and like forge a new path for juniors, which is commendable. And at the same time, the talent at heavyweight is passing him by. Not to say he couldn't hang with those guys, but we've seen the rise of so many top heavyweight talents over the past, you know, three or four years, and there's more on the horizon. Um, I'm just wondering if Hiromu could even. I mean, they probably would treat him like Jushin Liger when Jushin Liger went heavyweight, which was like, you know, he has great matches, but he's not, and he might get a title shot here or there, but he's not going to be treated as a, as a top guy. And he lost a lot. That's what happened to Liger. And I think that's probably what would happen to Hiromu. I would much rather prefer him just be 
the the liger of this generation personally he also asked what is up with all this okada hate in my birdman voice put some respect on okada's name this man is the goat he's not even 35 years old yet he put on classic after classic matches against the likes of Hiroshi Tanahashi, AJ Styles, Shinsuke Nakamura, Kenny Omega, Tetsuya Naito, Will Ospreay, Kota Ibushi, Katsuyori Shibata, plus many more names. And uh, I have to agree with you. Um, I don't know if there is Okada hate. I would say expel that hate from your heart because it's going to be sad when this man's gone and he is one of the greatest talents that has ever lived. Um, he said, now it's time for some fight talk <laughs> with rumors of Francis Ngannou. And Ganu looking to enter the boxing world, who would the ideal opponent be between Anthony Joshua, Tyson Fury, and Deontay, the bronze bomber Wilder? In my opinion, the best option would be Deontay Wilder due to the fact that the fight could be sold as the battle of the heavy hitters. And, you know, there is something to that. Um, Deontay Wilder is probably the scariest knockout artist of this generation. The scariest definitely since uh, Mike Tyson. And I would say, based on what I've seen, he reminds me of like a heavyweight version of like Tommy Hearns. Um, he may be the hardest hitter since Ernie Shavers. Likewise, Francis Ngannou is the scariest MMA striker I've ever seen in my life. And so you're taking in this generation and maybe all time, the two biggest strikers, um, from those two respective sports and putting them in a boxing match and they both have knockout dynamite power in both hands. That's an incredible selling point. But the reality is Francis Ngannou has no shot unless he just catches luckily, one of these three guys. So I would say the perfect opponent would be whichever one earns him the most amount of money because the rose will be off the bloom or the bloom will be off the rose or whatever that, that saying is after that one fight. So hopefully he cashes out with his one big fight. I would probably say um, with Tyson Fury, they'd probably sell the most tickets. They probably do the biggest business. And Tyson Fury probably take care of him the most and actually do business and carry him the same way that Floyd Mayweather carried um, rapist Conor McGregor um, in the past. So that would probably be his best bet. Uh, thoughts on the upcoming biopic film of the life of Big George Foreman. Thoughts on the boxing career Foreman. What would be your favorite Foreman fight? What's his legacy? Where does he rank among the top heavyweights of all time? And who would have... Uh, one in a fight between George Foreman and Larry Holmes. And man, a lot of great questions here. Um, I definitely want to see that movie. I don't know how good it will be, but I want to check it out. Um, as far as the boxing career Foreman, I mean, he's one of the most inspirational fighters of all time. Someone that, you know, uh, rose up as a juggernaut, won the world title, dropped it to Ali, was out of the sport shortly after that, was gone for nearly a decade, returned as an older man as a joke who was overweight no one took seriously and slowly but surely rose up the ranks and did the improbable and became the oldest heavyweight champion in history by knocking out michael moore i love his story um i think his legacy is that of being one of the greatest heavyweight fighters of all time old or young um I think he's easily amongst the top 10 fighters of all time. I usually, I don't have my official like rankings in front of me, but I mean, I usually end up ranking George Foreman like around like the probably like sixth best heavyweight of all time. Um, I do have to tell you though, oh, my favorite fight um, has got to be the fight with Ron Lyle. That's one of the greatest heavyweight knockdown drag out fights ever. If you've never seen it, 
It's a five. No, we're talking like a, a six star boxing match. These guys both hit the canvas multiple times. Knockout, drag out, brawl. It's incredible. It's one of the scariest heavyweight fights of all time. Um, but I do favor Larry Holmes over George Foreman. And I have Larry Holmes ranked higher than George Foreman. Stylistically, I think Larry Holmes had the answer for a guy like George, just personally. That's my opinion. Marukenta asked, Ryzen has shown interest in Ibushi and has thrown his name around as Pacquiao's first victim. Even with the weight advantage, how badly would he be destroyed by Pacquiao? Do you think Mayweather Pacquiao 2 will happen as an exhibition in Japan? And um, I don't know about that, although that might be fun and be interesting uh, as far as the exhibition question goes. I hadn't heard anything about that, but, you know, I'm sure those guys probably are up to making, you know, they're both down to make, you know, tens of millions of dollars against each other, probably close to like 50 million each. Um, And it's like I said earlier, I think Pacquiao would just utterly obliterate Abushi, he'd have no business. He has no business being in the ring with Pacquiao, and he would get just destroyed. And then uh, the final question here: with Fedor retiring this past weekend, what's your favorite Fedor moment and or fight? And Fedor is easily one of my favorite fighters that has ever lived. I think he is undoubtedly the greatest MMA fighter of all time. Um, I I definitely think there's discussions to be had for guys like john jones anderson silva george st pierre demetrius mighty mass johnson and uh if you told me that you thought differently i'd hear that out and i wouldn't necessarily disagree with you because i think that they're on the short list and i think so is fedor but um you know fedor milianenko has had the longest run of any number one pound for pound fighter in the world in history he sat atop the pound-for-pound pound rankings from 2003 till 2010 for seven years straight. Nobody, including John Jones, has ever done that. Um, he also was the most prolific heavyweight of his era. He went virtually undefeated for literally a decade, from 2000 till 2010. Um, he fought more combat sport world champions in MMA than any other fight and defeated them as well than, than any other um, fighter in history by my tally, he defeated upwards of over 20 world champions across numerous disciplines. This is including um, Olympic level wrestlers, division one level wrestlers, Olympic and, and we're talking gold medalists too and you know Olympians um, world champion judo players world champion BJJ players um, world champion MMA fighters world champion kickboxers world champion sambo fighters world champion valet tudo fighters like you name the discipline and you know this guy beat them all um, and that also includes world champions from every single major company in the world at that time including seven former UFC heavyweight champions that he defeated in his time. Um, Fedor is somebody that was not only undefeated for a decade, but he rarely ever lost a a round. Um, I can think of three moments in his entire prime that he was ever even troubled or had issues with an opponent. 
he didn't look like much. If you've ever seen this guy, he kind of looks like a bald Mario, you know, like a like a plumber, plump, round, rotund dude that probably has no business fighting. And then he would go in there with this aura of invincibility and just fucking smash and demolish anyone that was in front of him. Nobody stood a chance. Um, he has, I think, I believe, 16 knockouts, 15 submissions. This was someone who was stupendous in every single aspect of MMA. Most most of the goats that you talk about, they were really great in several disciplines and several areas of the game, but they had a glaring hole. But that's not how it was with Fedor. He was literally great at grappling. He was great off his back. He was great on top. He had dynamite in both hands. He could knock you out standing. In the clinch, he could fuck you up. He could sub you from any position. There's literally nowhere that this guy wasn't dominant and he wasn't a top fighter. And he mixed in those skills with beautiful precision. Um, and he beat. And the one thing, too, is you always hear people say, like, well, he never went to the UFC. Well, like, people don't understand. The UFC wasn't the top promotion in the world. From 1997 to 2007, Pride Fighting Championship was the preeminent and premier MMA organization where all the top fighters were. And he was their champion for almost the entirety of the company's existence. In fact, he was the number one world-ranked heavyweight from 2000 – no, I'm sorry, from 2003 all the way to 2010. And during that time, um, not he won three openweight World Grand Prix tournaments between Pride and Rings. He also won three World Heavyweight titles between Rings, Whamma, and Pride – and he successfully defended his number one ranking and world title in six subsequent um, defenses. No other fighter in history has defended a world heavyweight title in MMA more than three times successfully. Like, no one's even hit a fourth defense. He did it six times. And amongst that time, he also was fighting the best fighters in the world in non-title fights as well. Um, he was a wrecking ball. He was, he was a destroyer, and he was the, one of the most prolific and scariest fighters I've ever seen in my entire life. And then even after 2010, after he ate his first loss and he declined, he still, like, I, I, I don't have the exact numbers, but he still was defeating world champions across multiple disciplines uh, across the world, you know, and, and was only losing to the tip top competition and, and other legendary hall of famers and, and top end world champions. So, <laughs> um, I am sad to see Fedor, uh, Fedor retire. Um, I, it was unfortunate that fight he had just recently with Ryan Bader. Um, as far as my favorite moment, it might be him sitting in, um, Nogueras guard, in the first fight for the entirety of the fight and just doing what nobody thought was possible and smashing a top level world champion Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt with uh, his Sambo background and literally avoiding every submission and just dominating the guy. Um, it also might be him getting slammed on his head by Kevin Randleman, uh, a suplex that would have killed most people. And then moments later arm barring him and getting the guy out of there in, in just moments. Um, the time he fought Kazuyuki Fujita, yes, that Fujita from uh, New Japan and Noah Acclaim, uh, Acclaim and getting caught 
with one of the scariest overhand rights that would have probably knocked out most people and weathering a crazy storm from Fujita and eventually turning it around and, and beating him. Um, the fight with Mirko Krokop, the, the most feared striker in the history of MMA up to that point and the biggest super fight in MMA history and um, going to war with Krokop in one of the most beautiful fights of all time. That fight's up there. Or it might be when he went to America and the UFC talked all that shit and said he wasn't really a great champion. And then he smashed Tim Sylvia and then he smashed Andre Arlovsky in subsequent fights and just kind of embarrassed uh, the Fertitas and Dana White. <laughs> it could be those as well. I don't know. But, um, you know, congrats to Fedor on his retirement. I'm glad we got to see him fight. And uh, if you guys have never seen Fedor in his prime, you need to go out of your way and, and, and check him out. He was the all-time GOAT. So that's going to do it for the show. Let's uh, jump into recommended matches of the week and be out of here. So last week, I was given two matches. One was the recommended match of the week from Jeremy. Kushida versus Volador Jr. Best of the Super Juniors 24, night 13. Really loved this match. Um, kind of interesting because it was the B-block final leading into the finals for that year's Super Junior. But I kind of forgot that they didn't always especially at that point in time, give the same level of production and attention to these, um, you know, tournament nights as they, they do nowadays. And so we, the, the matches, um, it has multiple camera angles, but it's definitely their lower quality camera and there's no commentary. And um, the match is good. It's not great. It was on its way to being great. Kushida's very, very, very good at working that um, Lucha Libre style. Him and Fulador have actually had two matches ever in history. This is the last one. They had one other match in CMLL uh, prior to this, I think the year prior. But um, him and Fulador had a great back and forth contest, but it didn't feel watching it like this was a highly important match in the tournament when in fact it was the finals of the b-block finals and the winner of this match would go on to face will osprey in the tournament final so it didn't have that same level of urgency that you would expect from a b-block final it felt more like a really cool kind of indie showcase type match but it, nonetheless it was very good down the stretch though what i didn't like is Kushida hits his back to the future suplex. It's the um, it's a suplex turned into a small package in the middle of the air, and he liked to pin people with that. And he hits it on Volador, and he gets the one, and then Volador turns, reverses it to where Kushida's uh, shoulders are down, and Kushida, and then they they start the count again. They go into the one two, and then Kushida reverses it to volador and the referee counts three and then the match ends and it's really wonky because it's like why didn't you restart the count i, I don't know it, it seemed to be a mishap on the referee side of things um the crowd was not lively on this evening and had this been in front of a bigger arena or a better crowd it would have probably got a lot more praise and recognition Nonetheless, still a great match. I'm like three and three quarters on it. And if you haven't seen it, I definitely recommend it. Um, as far as the excursion match of the week, we had a question last week from Rocky Romero. He asked us, have we seen his match with Volador Jr. from January 20th, 2023, CMLL Super Viernes, um, Friday night, Arena Mexico for the 
CMLL World Historic Welterweight Championship. And we had not, but I went out of my way to go ahead and check it out. And guys, when I got done watching, this one word came to my mind, and that word is masterpiece. This is undoubtedly a leading frontrunner contender for excursion match of the year already. Um, this was incredible. Rocky Romero has done incredible heel work in this feud with Volador Jr. I kind of got myself caught up just a bit and him and Volador went out there and I was a little confused because I was expecting this to be a two out of three falls match and I don't watch a lot of Lucha Libre but when I do I kind of understand the tropes. I've seen a lot of their bigger two out of three falls title matches and so I was sort of expecting the tides to kind of turn and someone to get their quick victory and then that never came then i realized like down the stretch like oh this is it like it's a single fall match i didn't even understand that um but nonetheless while rocky was the heel and volador was clearly the baby face rocky was definitely using heel persona to draw the ire of the crowd this was a pretty clean match nonetheless and these guys not only did they have a lot of great technical and mat wrestling, the the big spots and the dives to the outside, this was some of the best stuff I've seen from Rocky in a long time. And Rocky's always fantastic, and we're always singing his praises, but like he put in the extra effort here in a big stakes main event, and so did Volador Jr., and they just blew me away. And there were so many incredible near falls and and times where I thought the match was over and it just wasn't. They just kept kicking out. Remind me a lot of like a Lucha Libre version of like um, Undertaker versus Shawn Michaels almost. You know, I had that WrestleMania-esque type of feel where they're hitting their biggest offense on one another and both guys just kept coming for more and just kept uh, kicking out. And um, down the stretch, the finish was so great. There's a point where Volador is on the top rope and it looks like he's getting ready to, you know, set Rocky up for a finisher and Rocky, um, stands up, hits him with a, you know, open hand strike elbow, I believe gets on the top rope. And then they do a flying, uh, you know, he basically dives with Volador to where they land in the cross arm breaker spot and immediately Volador just starts tapping and the crowd is aghast. They did not in any respect believe that Rocky Romero was going to win. And if you guys are not aware, like this title belt has been tied to Volador like the greater part of this entire decade, you know. Um, He's had three title reigns and each one has been very, very lengthy with a lot of title defenses. And this is kind of like the Volador Jr. world title. And Rocky Romero has taken it from him. And um, the post-match was great. Rocky was, you know, doing a great heel heel job and telling people to suck it. And it was just so good. Um, I'm, I'm not doing it justice, giving the full recap. I wish I could give you guys a better recap. But it is free. It's available on YouTube. I reposted it on our Twitter account. And I'm four and three quarters on this. I'm like just a a smidge shy away from a five-star rating. That's how good this match was. Blew me away. Um, Yeah, just blew me away. Uh, Kudos to those guys. So uh, we're going to take a break on recommended match of the week uh, since Jeremy's out of town. And um, we will come back next week with more recommendations. So um, that is going to do it for this week's show. Next week we'll be back to review New Beginning in Osaka and Preview Best in the Valley 
on February 18th. If you've enjoyed today's show, please consider making a donation. Visit socialsuplex.com slash donate and click on the donate button under the Keeping It Strong Style logo. Make sure to connect with us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit. Or you can email Jeremy at socialsuplex.com. On Twitter, we're at KI Strong Style. On Facebook, we run the Wrestling Squared Circle Facebook group. And um, you can also find Keeping It Strong Style on Instagram, on Reddit. Jeremy's the pro black guy, and I am Keeping It Strong Style. Um, check out all of our other shows on the Social Suplex Podcast Network, One Nation Radio, hosted by Rich Ladd and James Boyd, Grave Consequences with Caleb and Maserati, All Things Elite with Floyd and Austin, the AEW Match Guide Podcast, hosted by Sir Sam, and the Great Match Generator, hosted by Danny Kugler. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and review. Before I give you guys the tagline, if you've enjoyed the show, you probably can hear my voice is pretty hoarse. Give us some follow-up. Let us know what you thought of this week's show. It's my first time ever doing a solo show. Hit us up on Twitter or on Reddit. We greatly appreciate it. We will catch you next week on Keeping It Strong Style, the ace of podcasts. Ichiban. Thank you for listening to Keeping It Strong Style. We'll see you next time. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.